Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we open a book and tell you what's in it. And if you say, I don't want you to tell me what's in it. I want to find out for myself. Baby doll, you can do that. But if you're interested in what we have to say once, twice, maybe three times, then join us for our third episode on Jessica Simpson's open book. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I just got the hiccups. Because you're so excited about Jessie S. I kind of feel like that's very Jessica-esque to have. I just imagine her with hiccups. I think she's perpetually hiccuping. This is a redo of our Jessica Simpson episode. This was the first book we ever covered on this podcast almost exactly three years ago. I didn't think that I gave it justice. I have to say it was one of the first celebrity books I ever read. And so I didn't really know what I had in my hands. And I also think this was before we were describing the book as we went and we would just talk about random parts randomly. Yeah, I think it might actually be so hard to follow and probably not a good episode. We also had a guest episode. We talked to Ashley Hessel, teen from Girls Gotta Eat. So if you guys want to scroll, 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 scroll and find that. I mean, be our guest. But I think this is going to be a better version. (laughs) I'm excited. I'm excited to give Jessica Simpson another whack at it. I will say, I don't know how much of my opinion has changed on her generally. I think that I feel more upset and suspicious of the people around her than I did last time. Although I think I felt upset and suspicious last time too. Yeah. I think I feel more compassion for her than I did before. And I think that I know that this is a better book than we gave it credit for before. Okay, I think it's as good a book as I thought it was, but now... The curve has changed. Yes, yes, yes. I think if I were to grade it out of 100, I would have given it the same grade I gave last time. But I think now if I were to grade it on a curve of how the whole class is doing, I was like, oh, this is actually much better than I would have assumed. If she was coming out with a book today, knowing what I know now, I would have said, I doubt it'll be a good book. Yeah, I think I feel overall positively towards it still. But knowing the other things we've read, this is actually an incredible book. (laughs) I will say it starts out in a way that I believe I remember pissing me off and to this day it pisses me off. Oh, wait. Claire has our first edition, the edition we used last time, because when we actually started this podcast, we thought we would buy one of every book and share it and like Claire would read it and then give it to me and then I would read it and then we'd record an episode. And I think that was born of necessity because we were like, we can't afford to just be buying this many books a month. That's so true. And when it's a side hustle that brings in zero dollars, that is a lot of money. But when it's your full-time business and that's your literal only expense, you're like, that's actually not so bad. Yeah. So I have a version with an introduction. Oh my God. Introduce me. So it doesn't really do much. It just is like when I wrote this book, I was really afraid to publish it. And I was afraid to stop writing it because I like enjoyed our time together. So I guess it didn't piss me off last time. It just pissed me off this time because it didn't exist last time. I don't like when the writer refers to the reader in like personal and endearing terms. It stresses me out because I'm like, this feels fake. It is very funny to be like, I never wanted to stop writing this book because I didn't want to lose any time with you. And I'm like, you mean yourself? Because I wasn't there. Yeah. So she says, I spent more than a year on open book and I thought about you the whole time. Part of me didn't want to finish the book because I knew how much I'd miss you. I mean, shut up. You don't know me, Jessica Simpson. You've never met me. I really don't think you'd like me. I think I bring a cynicism to the table that you'd find really off-putting. I think I'd bring a cold hard truth about your entourage that you would find to be a stab in the back. I think when I tell you your 12 best friends are actually your employees, I think it would hurt you more than it hurt you when Nick said it. (laughs) Exactly. So now the prologue. Because we know all good books can't really just start at the beginning. They just start a couple times before. (laughs) February 2019. 
The kids are asleep and my husband is reading in the other room. So it's just you and me. It's not. You don't even know what year it is. You're writing and you don't even know about the pandemic. So we're not together. You don't know that it's just you and me. It's actually you, me, Claire and the worms. She doesn't know us the way we know you guys. You guys are our friends and we love you. But Jessica Simpson is lying when she says that. She writes about where her life is now. She's married to Eric, the football player slash businessman slash yogi, which is something I love about him. I am obsessed with this line. He's this amazing blend of athlete and hippie, a pro football player who did yoga on the sidelines at Yale while everyone else ran sprints. Can I say, I really think you have to do yoga in addition to running sprints. And I think this speaks to why his career was not that impactful. (laughs) So she's talking about Halloween of 2017. She had planned this huge party. Jessica Simpson is such an interesting look at celebrity and the gravity of celebrity and the way that when you have enough money and power, you really can build your world from scratch. So she throws every party that she goes to. She throws every party that you want to go to. She doesn't ever leave her house. And she talks about how she moved into this house and they built a record studio in it and they built a pool and they do all their parties and She never has to leave for anything, which is not a healthy, normal way to live your life, to be honest. And there's like constantly an influx of people. She has a house manager. There's so many people around her at all times. She's never alone in her life, which I find to be quite bad. And everybody who works for her, Randy, her house manager, is married to Cece, which is what her kids call Carol, who was her dance teacher as a kid who became her choreographer on tour is now helping out with the Jessica Simpson collection. She knew them from childhood. And like everybody who's ever been in the tornado path of Jessica Simpson is still there. And they all are supported by her. They're all on the payroll and they all come to her. So it is Halloween. She's throwing this huge party. Her childhood best friend is now her event planner. And she has her rock bottom with drinking. Basically, that morning, she woke up at 7 a.m. and started drinking, as she often does, to keep off the shakes. And she went to a school performance for her oldest daughter, Maxie Drew, who I think is one of the most beautiful children on the planet currently. (laughs) That we know of. Not everyone is putting their kids online. Yeah, but I think most people with good-looking kids are putting them online. I think Jessica Simpson is an extremely thoughtful person who's been swept up in a world that tried to beat that out of her. I think she's extremely earnest in a world that took advantage of that fully. Yeah, I find her very vulnerable and honest. And I also think that she is deeply insecure, which she admits to, but I think it's in a lot more ways than she even realizes are still in her. She talks a lot about wanting to seem smart and being afraid that people think she's dumb and how she had to come to terms with the fact that she like knows she's a billionaire businesswoman and she's very capable. But this book reeks of insecurity that the reader will not think she's smart. Some of the lines are warped and twisted in a way where I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? But some of them, I think, when she's just flowing from the heart are so good. She says that this feeling that she was constantly keeping up with, her life was moving really fast, but you've created that speed. You're the one who set all these great things into motion. And I think that that is such an interesting thing to say. There are all these expectations that she's struggling to keep up with, but she's the one who set those expectations for herself. And I think acknowledging that is really strong. Yeah, this book reads really quickly and well. I have to say it's well written in that it's very clear and straightforward and compelling. And this doesn't actually have to do with anything, but a line that I found really beautiful is when she's talking about raising her children and she says there are so many firsts to raising kids and parents are told to catch them all, but they don't warn you about the last. That's really sweet. So she's woken up at seven to go to Maxie Drew's concert. As I said, she rarely leaves the house. So this is a huge anxiety producing moment for her. 
she has this real fear and I think well-earned fear that people are always looking at her. So she hates going to these school events because she doesn't relate to the other moms. She doesn't participate the way the other moms participate. And she feels like they're judging her. And when she turns to look at her husband and says, I think everyone's looking at me, he's like, they are. You're Jessica Simpson at a school concert. People notice. And you're not Jessica Simpson who's made herself a regular mom. You're Jessica Simpson who stays away. Yes. So she, at this moment, runs into her dad, who she has not seen that often for years because he divorced her mom. She picked the mom and she fired him as a manager, which is something that she'll get into later. That was very difficult for her. And she's like, I need you to come listen to my latest album. The latest album is literally just song after song about how abandoned she felt by him and how much he hurt her. And they have this moment where he says, it's so beautiful. I'm just sad. I'm not your manager getting to promote it. And then she has like an absolute fucking nervous breakdown and she lies down on the ground in her foyer and like loses her mind. And at this point, the craziest thing I've ever read in a memoir begins to happen, which is she has a full on intervention without her husband present, but with the presence of her hairdressers. Yeah. So she has a mental breakdown. She's like on the floor of the foyer. It is Halloween. So everyone's coming over for Halloween. She pulls it together for like a family photo because she has told herself that people are going to expect the family photo. Even though, again, I think that if there was no Simpson family Halloween photo, no one would have noticed. Even Heidi Klum, who every year makes a big show of looking good for Halloween. If one year she skipped it, I wouldn't think twice. I'd go, oh, she must. Actually, I wouldn't say, oh, she must have had a family thing. I literally wouldn't have even considered it. I wouldn't have considered it. But she pulls it together for the photo. And then her husband is like, okay, now time for trick-or-treating. And she's like, no, I'm not doing that. She goes and takes an Ambien and she goes to bed with her Willie Nelson wig on. (laughs) And then in the morning, her friends are coming over for a meeting. Her hairdressers are coming to do her hair during the meeting. They intervene. And then she has kind of an after-school special style reckoning, which in this chapter feels very like those loose ends, they're tied up and now everything's fine. But later in the book, I think she gives a more honest take at her reconciling her problem. But here she's like, me and my friends, we held hands and prayed. And then I told Eric, no more alcohol ever. And that was that. And then she backs it up to say, how did we get here? I think one thing that really struck me about this chapter is that we have yet to hear this music. Is that true? She released a single in like November 2021, I believe. But we haven't gotten anything since. So I kind of wish her dad was still her manager to promote this music because no one else is doing it. Halloween 2017. So her country album came out in 2008 and she had a single that came out in 2021 and that's it. So I am interested to hear it. Maybe she'll hear this episode and say, yeah, it's time we put that album out. (laughs) Jessica, if you're listening, we'd love to hear how mad you are at your dad. I'm really curious because you know what? I'm also so mad at him and we will get into it later, but I think he's a really bad man. Oh, of course. June 1982. She was born, I think, in 1980. Does that sound right? Because she's two years old in 1982. Yeah, that sounds perfect. (laughs) In June of 1982, she was in a car accident. She went through the windshield and cracked her friggin' skull in half. And had a terrible concussion after which she had a really bad stutter. And they didn't know how to fix it until finally her aunt, who was a speech pathologist, was like, tell her to slow down and just try to sing everything. And the minute she started singing, she never stopped. And that is how she spoke as a little girl. And even though I do think this book is well written, I do want to call out this one line that kind of irked me. She has this whole thing about how she can't remember this time in her life at all. And then she talks about when her mother says, what you're trying to say, sing it to me. I turned the phrase over in my mind, smoothing the edges of its consonants and vowels until the words became breaths of a song, a lyric I could control. I understand that there's parts of your life that you can't remember that you have to tell it with detail as if you do remember it. 
But I think that much poeticism added to a moment that you have just admitted you cannot recall at all felt so heavy handed that I think for the second time reading this book in a row, I was stopped dead in my tracks. I felt it was a lurch of writing. I think that that happens a few times. Like, I think it's her anxiety about not seeming smart. And obviously, she worked with a ghostwriter for this. I'm sure she did. But I think that I believe that because of her anxiety about not sounding smart, she probably was very involved in the writing of this book. And I'm sure she went back and said, judge that line. I have a feeling that she would write each chapter and then it was heavily edited. More yes. than ghostwritten, actually. So she's talking about this car accident and says, I wanted to go to McDonald's and my mom didn't seem to understand how serious I was about this. I stood on the back seat and leaned so that I could throw my arms around her, grabbing her face with both hands to yell McDonald's. Jessica, she screamed. She looked away from the road. How long? A second? Two? Enough to drive across the lane and hit a car coming towards us. This retelling of a story that she does not remember is steeped in blame for herself. The way this story is told is that Jessica caused this accident. Yeah. Which I find so interesting. There are certain times when she adds a lot of detail to a story that is unnecessary. But I think that the detail in this story really shows me the way the story is told is like, yes, you were in this accident, but it was your completely fault. your fault. Like you distracted your mom. Your mom did not crash a car that gave you a stutter. You crashed a car that gave you a stutter. You were loud. You caused problems. That is very interesting. Good insight, Ashley. So for the next two years, she sings everything like a little Disney princess. They move around a lot. We would move 18 times before I hit fifth grade. You move around a lot in the Baptist church, but my father was especially restless. Even when he left the ministry for a few years, when I was little to see what it would be like for us to actually have money, he kept accepting transfers from his job selling postage meters for Pitney Bowes. So... Ashley is born around this time. They loved each other. They're very close sisters. They used to snuggle at night. I guess Ashley would climb out of her crib and they would just snoogle at night. But I also find it very interesting that her dad left the ministry for a few years. To try to make more money. Yes, because I mean, my big problem with religion is that the people who are drawn to becoming leaders are people that are like trying to lead a cult but don't have the tenacity to start a cult. Well, it's interesting. He only got the job because he was a Nepo baby. His dad was already a pastor and they were like, well, we could get you a gig too. Yeah. And then he did it and he was like, I wish I made more money. And he wasn't happy until he was working for a mega church where he was making more money and had a lot of sway. Yeah. He was not interested in like preaching the word of God. He was interested in a career that gave him social influence and money. And then obviously having a famous daughter gave him the most social influence and the most money. And we'll see this later. Once they went to Hollywood for Jessica's career. God left the fucking car. I mean, they stopped going to church at all. I find it so fascinating when someone is a fucking pastor who can't even be bothered to keep up the charade of just going to church on Christmas every now and then. <laughs> Things were tense at home. My parents were fighting a lot, each accusing the other of overspending. They always stayed kind to each other in front of Ashley and me, but sometimes one of them would have to storm off to keep from saying something nasty. This is also so funny to me. This would be like, my parents were always kind in front of me and my sister, even though I knew how much they were fighting all the time. Yeah, I'm like, okay, so they weren't kind in front of you guys. This made me think about money from a young age, even though we'd never had any, so I didn't know any different. She really believed that it was her burden from a young age to be the family breadwinner. Once she found a keychain with the hook that said, Jessica, the wealthy one, it stayed with me. I walked around thinking I'm the wealthy one, not realizing it meant rich in spirit. I just thought it was about money. And every time my parents seemed worried, I'd say, I'm going to be rich. I'd be the one to lift my parents out of their struggles. I'd be the one to end their fights once and for all. I think something really interesting about her carrying the burden of her family's financial insecurity 
She, in this book, is keenly aware of what her dad's salary was at all times. Why would she know that? To this day, I'm like, how much money does my dad make? $7 an hour? A hundred? I don't know. <laughs> One time, my ex-boyfriend from college, there was this website where if like you put in someone's name, it would tell you how much they think they made. And he like did my dad. And I remember being like, what are you doing right now? That's so crazy. I don't want to know. As season change, as lifestyles change, I cannot be trusted to shop for myself. Let me tell you what, I walk into a store, I know exactly what I'm looking for, and as soon as I see a rack of something else, I completely lose the plot. But Stitch Fix is the best way to shop new styles and brands. Think of Stitch Fix as your style partner. You get a stylist, and they learn about you through a quiz, through notes that you leave, and they send you five items in a fix right to your door. With your choices in mind and sizes from extra small to 3XL, they find your perfect fit. They send you items based off of your preferred fit, your preferred styles, and then you keep what you love. You can try everything on, keep what you like, and send back the rest. Shipping and returns are completely free, and it is the speediest way to shop from hundreds of brands. Imagine walking into a department store with everything you've ever wanted, except for they know before you even stop in which five things you definitely want to try on. You put them on. If you love them, you keep them. And if you love everything, then you get to keep it at a discount. They have over a thousand brands and styles. So no matter what season of life you're in, Stitch Fix has you covered. Simply order a refresh as needed or set it and forget it with regular fixes. Over time, Stitch Fix and their seasoned style experts will match you with greater precision and they'll find perfect pieces for you based on your likes and dislikes. It's so easy. I got a Stitch Fix. I got the most comfortable pants that also have a bit of a shape and like a look to them so that they're not just comfy pants. They're normal wear in life pants, but like they're soft and comfy. My Stitch also came with a gorgeous sweater that I'm so excited for. Perfect timing. It's September. I'm sure it'll be chilly soon. Thank you, Stitch Fix. They just get me and they'll get you too. Try today at stitchfix.com slash worm and you'll get 25% off when you keep everything in your fix. That's stitchfix.com slash worm, stitchfix.com slash worm. She talks about admiring her dad as a pastor, which I don't know, feels like kind of only she did. I don't think anyone else was that big of a fan. And her mom, to supplement her dad's income, started an aerobics company. Jane Fonda was all the rage at this time. And it was like a Jesus-themed aerobics video called Jump for Jesus. And she'd be like, lift those knees high for Jesus. <laughs> Reach up to the heavens. She also says that in order to be allowed to teach it in the churches, she had to go to the board of the diocese and ask for permission. And they were like, I don't know. Why should women have to do that? And then they were like, it'll make them get their best bodies. And then all the men were on board. And I was like, Ugh, men are so disgusting. Yeah, but I wanted to say how like entrepreneurial and brilliant that is to supplement the dad's fucking shitty vibes. And then also they would sell them at all these conventions. They would go to like church camp and sell them. She was. She was a hustler who was always figuring out a way to make money and sell to women. And I think it's so telling that in order to hustle and like make probably great money, I bet you that this Jump for Jesus raked in cash. She had to like do it in the shadow of her husband's work. Like he is the pastor and I'll sell my silly little tapes yeah. that are Jesus themed because he inspires me to follow Jesus. She also talks about how she really respected that her parents were good people, that they were a safe place for other teenagers who were struggling to come speak to. She tells a story about a time 
her mom went and kind of fostered this baby that this teen who had been turned away by her parents had who was struggling with postpartum depression and they were so unjudgmental for teens who struggled with drugs and people who were going through bad times in their marriages. I don't believe it, but it's a sweet idea. And it's also juxtaposed with her telling them that she had been molested and them ignoring it. So she tells the story that for six years, from ages six to 12, they had family friends that they would go visit two or three times a year. And at night, the daughter who was a few years older than Jessica would touch her inappropriately and it escalated. And it was just a very inappropriate and uncomfortable situation. Finally, she gathers the courage to tell her parents about it and they say nothing. I couldn't undo it. It was done. My mother slapped my father's arm with the back of her hand. I told you something was happening. She yelled at him. Neither turned to look at me. Dad kept his eyes on the road and said nothing, his shoulders sunken. It didn't surprise me that my mother knew. I already understood denial and how much it fueled the actions of families, especially Southern families. People want to paint a pretty picture, especially a minister's family. They were probably also shocked. These good people who did everything to help others hadn't been able to help their own daughter. I guess it's just really heartbreaking because it's not these good people who work so hard to help others and yet they couldn't keep their own daughter safe. They're presented with an opportunity now to be good people to their struggling daughter and they don't. Yeah, she's not blaming them for not knowing. She says they never went back to visit that family again, but it was never discussed. Yeah, which just continues to push her into this shroud of shame. She's so ashamed of what happened to her. She believes it was her fault. She especially believes that the continued assault was her fault because she never spoke up. You know, it is really sad to read that her parents further caused a lot of pain. I understand not being able to acknowledge it. But as an outsider, I will say it makes me really mad at her parents. So growing up in the church, one of the big things that she loved to do was sing. She was part of all the choirs. She says she never really knew she had a good voice. She just always was singing and knew that she was always picked for solos and stuff. And she was just like, I don't know. I just sing. That's my thing. She felt very moved by the Lord. God was using her voice. And she would do these local voice competitions. And finally, one day someone is like, hey, you know, the Mickey Mouse Club is coming to recruit their new cast. They're going to be in Dallas. And so the mom is like, let's bring the whole church choir to Dallas. Which feels like bullshit, honestly. They paint it out to be like, my mom didn't just want to single me out. So she said everyone should get a chance. But I'm like, the reason the other kids didn't know about the opportunity is because it didn't make sense for them to know. Yeah. It's not like you got some unfair advantage by finding out information. You were presented by somebody who said, you're a good singer. You should know about this. Of course, none of the other kids made it. And they just waited all day in the hot sun. Imagine showing up to church one day and being like, guess what? We're going to spend the next week staking out an American Idol audition. And you're like, why? (laughs) I have no interest. (laughs) So she goes to Dallas. Of course, she makes it to the next round because we're reading her book and we know the story. (laughs) But she makes it to the next round to go to the Mickey Mouse Club auditions in Orlando. But they give her one piece of feedback before she gets there. And they say she needs to work on her acting skills. So she gets sent to the Chuck Norris School of Acting. This is the real actual Chuck Norris as an acting teacher. It's not like how the Upright Citizens Brigade is the Amy Poehler school of improv. Like literally Chuck Norris was her acting coach. If you go to school in Vegas, you're going to the Andre Agassi school of school. Like this is (laughs) Chuck Norris is the teacher. And he has one piece of advice. He said, do you know who the most powerful actor in the world is? I wasn't sure if I was supposed to say Chuck Norris. Denzel (laughs) Washington. He said, oh, Do you know why, he asked. This time he didn't wait for me to answer. He just turned and grabbed a green roll of scotch tape. Denzel can say anything without moving his eyebrows, he said. So Jessica, I'd like to try something. 
So he tapes her eyebrows down and for weeks she has to take acting class with her eyebrows taped down so that she doesn't get too expressive. And she hates it. She has a horrible time. She would cry and say, I don't want to go in there. And her mom would say, you have to. If you want to do this thing, you have to go to these classes. And I will point out that at no point has she ever said she wants to do this thing. Someone told her mom there are auditions. Her mom brought the entire troupe to auditions. At this point, it is unclear whether or not Jessica Simpson has any interest in fame. To this day, I don't believe she had any interest in performing or fame. Okay, I disagree. I think she loves performing. I think she genuinely loves singing. She loves touching people with her voice. She loves singing live. That I believe 100%. And I think she loves to succeed. And if you present her with an opportunity, maybe not that she loves to win, but she will beat herself up for not being good enough. I partially agree. And I think she would have been so happy spending life as the choir leader and like wife of a pastor and performing for her church. Yeah, I don't think she needed to be famous. Yes, but I think the pursuit of fame was because she knew about the financial relief it would offer her family. And I think that she put a lot of pressure on herself to do things that she really doesn't like so that her family would be financially stable. But so she talks about going down to Orlando for two weeks to do these auditions for the Mickey Mouse Club. There's already regulars like Justin Timberlake, Ryan Gosling. They'd already been part of it. They're all running around. She describes, then there was Christina Aguilera, this timid, frankly, kind of mousy girl in glasses from Pittsburgh. If there's one thing I know for sure about from this book, she does not like Christina Aguilera. Her mother had tried to get her on the show when she was 10, but the casting director said she had to wait. She was just so tiny that I didn't really know how she could even possibly get on television. Ryan Gosling was her first real crush. She thought he was so cute. And Jessica Simpson was thought to be a shoo-in. Based on acting camp and training camp, everyone was like, okay, she's going to be top eight. I think they were told specifically by the casting director she's top eight. And then she just blows her audition. She eats shit. And the night before, another gorgeous blonde had been flown in from New York. She hadn't been able to make training camp because she was on an off-Broadway show. It was... Britney motherfucking Spears. And of course, Britney Spears goes out there and nails her audition because that girl can dance like no other. When Britney got out there and did her full on out of the box dance routine like a machine, I knew it was over for me. They told us that the higher ups would look at the videos and make the final selection. She also talks about Christina and how she got out there and they had like Cinderella'd her. They had taken her to the mall, gotten rid of her glasses, zhuzhed her up. And then when she was singing, we all, even my parents, gasped. I knew she was good, but she must have been holding back slightly all week and knew that this was time to go for it. The visual just didn't match what I was hearing. Even Justin, after she gets off stage for her audition, is like, oh my God. Ooh, Justin said, with his eyes so wide, his mouth open like a slack-jawed cartoon. What did you just do? When she went out there, she botched her song. She couldn't remember her lines. She completely flubbed. Yeah, so she's back home. They say they're going to send a letter to the kids who made it. So for weeks, like no one at home believes her. Like everyone's like, what are you talking about? You just spent a month in Orlando auditioning for the Mickey Mouse Club. Like, no, you fucking didn't. I don't think they believe her when she doesn't get in either. I just don't think they ever believe her all through high school. Me either. So she, of course, gets the letter that she did not get it. And she is hysterical. She cries for days. She thinks she's just not good enough. She doesn't know if she wants to go on. And her parents are split about what to do next. Her dad is like, we got to get her back out there. They said she was almost good enough. She'll get him next time. And her mom is like, no, I can't watch her go through this much pain again. She can't handle it. I think this line is so interesting. My mother acted like we'd touched a flame and now we knew better. She didn't know that we could handle something that devastating again. My father, on the other hand, was mesmerized by the flame. I mean, he is addicted to the rush of knowing that he might have an extraordinary daughter. They had told him that his daughter was a star and it was his responsibility to make that happen for me. And yes, for us. They had huge fights about it when they thought I couldn't hear them. When my father would start on some new plan to launch me, she would stop him. 
So they meet this guy named Buster Sories at church camp, and he is a record producer. He has a record label called Proclaim Records, and they do gospel music. So they get her in the studio to record a gospel album. They decide this is going to be her entree into music. She starts performing on the gospel circuit. She's recording. She spends so much time flying back and forth to record her gospel album and then to be in regular school, kind of. And it just makes her an outcast. She does not enjoy it. She does not like this music. She does not trust him. I think she instinctively knows there's something up here. And her dad is really just pushing down paths that lead nowhere. And she can feel it. And she's burnt out. But then she gets into her high school experience while she's back home. Fall 1993. I think she's 13, 14. It's eighth grade. She got boobs. The boobs we know today, they showed up around this time. She said at this point, she didn't trust girls or boys. But at least the boys were nice to her, even if they were only looking for one thing. She said, boys were nicer to me because of my breasts. Well, at least they were nice to me. And people were so mean to her because of her boobs. She would go out to sing and at church, they would be like, she's an abomination. And her mom would be like, what the fuck are you talking about? And no matter how much they covered her up, they'd be like, look at those things. Bounce. Get her out of here. And it's like, you're talking about a fucking child, you sickos. This is why people are so mad at the churches all the time. Because if you, an adult man, are saying that there's something wrong with an eighth grade girl who has a body and cannot help it. You are actually the problem. Yes. She is not somebody who shouldn't be on stage singing because you can't stop getting horny for a 13-year-old. You're a sicko. And this is like the only place I'll give any of her parents credit. Her mom was very defensive of her. She had her own resentment. She put so much into the church. Any slight to her family gave her a release valve of anger. She will make men lust. She's 13. That's her mom saying she's 13. Anytime I sing, I had to cover myself. Being a preacher's daughter, I was used to being looked at and held to a higher standard. But having people focus on something completely different than what I was trying to do was strange. Wait, I wanted to say I'm singing to God right now. God's using me right now. Let him sing through me and stop looking at the vessel. All the judgment and it was constant toughened me up for what would come. But then I was 13 singing to the Lord and trying to do what he called me to do. So then she makes friends because she joins cheerleading. She finally gets girlfriends that she thinks are her friends. And she makes friends with this one girl who she thinks is her best friend. And this girl confides that she knows somebody who's being molested. And honestly, reading this book a second time, I wondered if it was her. Yeah. I do wonder if this girl who she calls Beetlejuice was like, I have a friend and this bad thing is happening to my friend. I wonder if the friend was the friend. Yeah. She's afraid to open up about herself. But then Jessica has like this wave of confidence because she sees us as an opportunity to help someone who's being hurt. And she says, tell your friend that they have to tell an adult this happened to me. And she tells this girl that we call Beetlejuice what happened to her. And then this is not where the problem sets in. Beetlejuice has a crush on a guy named Mark. And then in school, everyone finds out that Mark has a crush on Jessica. And of course, who could blame him? I'm sorry. She's gorgeous. If you went to school with Jessica Simpson, the perfect little preacher's daughter with giant boobs. And she glows. I'm sorry, but this bitch is radiant. She is so freakishly hot. So Mark has a crush on Jessica and Beetlejuice is obviously jealous. And so instead of just being classic jealous, she tells everyone in school that Jessica molested her and is a lesbian. And in a Southern high school, that doesn't go over good. This started some chain reaction thing where three other girls, and I remember their names too, then claimed that I had done the same thing to them. I'd never even been alone with some of them, let alone at their houses, but I was a town witch and the torches were going cheap. My mom picked me up. I was a blubbering mess in the car. I didn't even know how to explain what they said about me. I got home and ran to my room. That night, our house got egged. I think my parents thought it was just a prank, but I knew. 
In the night, someone scrawled, die bitch, in a black shoe polish across our home. I felt so bad for Ashley, who was nodding so confused. Can I say this is some of the worst bullying I think we've ever read in a memoir? Yes. So few people, when they're like, yeah, I was bullied in school. And I'm like, no, this was just eight-year-olds being mean to each other. She was like systematically fucking bullied. Yeah. She stayed home for two weeks and then her parents finally made her go. She said when she got back to school, everybody looked at her and her locker had been filled with trash and anti-gay posters were hung everywhere against her. People were flyering her house with anti-gay posters. It was so cruel what happened to her. We've got to do this, Jessica, my mom said. Later, that emphatic we would mean me going on stage no matter how I felt or doing an interview with someone when I didn't want to talk about my personal life. That we meant you. And this time I took the we seriously and made her walk in with me. If you forgive them, my mom said, God will forgive them too. Okay, I said. People move on, but the scar remained. I had opened up to someone and look what it got me. It went so far as she went to school that day and there was a pep rally and she had to go because she's a cheerleader. And one of the girls from her squad, which was the other school's squad, and had them start taunting her that she was a lesbian. I mean, it was so horrible. I mean, she was genuinely fucking bullied. She says one girl named Lisa was nice to her. And she says, I don't want to focus on my enemies. No, the people I want to focus on are Lisa, who was kind to me and went on to become a successful therapist. And you, if you are being bullied, whether it's because you're gay or someone decides they don't like something about you, let me be the Lisa who says, I see you. You are perfectly made. So after school, she usually just goes to church. And through church, she met a boy named Jason. He came through her father's counseling program and became a better person. He was a few years older than her and on the wrestling team. And they started dating. But their dates are so innocent their first date was valentine's day and she cooks dinner for him at her parents house with her parents present this kind of stuff fucks me up i mean the fact that these like gender roles are so enforced early on they're like oh you have a crush on a boy show him your homemaking skills 14 year old and then her mom insists that they have peppermint patties and like peppermint patties for dessert because he had like asked permission and gotten permission from her parents to kiss her one time that night And her dad gave her permission, but just for the night. Listen, I understand that like children shouldn't be running around having sex, but she was 15 at this point. I think she's allowed to decide for herself whether or not she wants to kiss. These are the same people who would force a 15-year-old to have a child. Yeah. To term. So I don't know. Which is it? Are they allowed to determine whether or not they want to kiss a boy or not? Or should they be parents? So she is recording her gospel albums, going to school, dating Jason. I was working so hard to be a rigid version of Godly, and I judged so many people. She is very caught up in perfectionism, but her cousin Sarah is like a beacon of light to her, someone who is godly but is also cool and has friends. And she's like, I can't believe it. Sarah talked about God to people who believed it and listened to her because Sarah was just such a fucking vibe. Around this time, though, she's a sophomore and junior in high school, and Buster is still in their lives. Buster would come in and out of our lives, making promises about my future and his belief in me. And then he would be back in New Jersey while we just ran on faith. I was getting used to planes and the Tylenol PM I took before a flight or to come down for a recording session or concert. I was doing more appearances and handing out more headshots to audiences at Bible camps and revivals. I wish we had an album to hand out or better for my family to sell. They're back at the recording studio. I think they're in New Jersey... So she is living this weird double life when she's at home. She's a super devout, good girl who's just being her preacher's daughter, getting boys to come and turning them into Christians. Getting boys to come. To God. (laughs) Come to God. Come on, God. (laughs) (laughs) And then get on your knees and come to God. (laughs) And then she was spending like every other week going to New Jersey and singing with this gospel choir. She talks about one of the first recordings she did. There was an entire gospel choir doing backing to her. 
And she was like, I could tell everybody in that room was like, why is this the dynamic? So they're in Nashville to do more recording or more something. Oh, they're going to shoot her album cover for her gospel album. And they're in the hotel room and they get a call. Sarah has been killed. I do wish she had just said a car accident because the explanation takes the gravity out of the moment for me. I hate to say it. I think I'm a bit more sensitive and kind now than I was three years ago when we read this book. I'm not. So it is with pain (laughs) that I tell you that this is the most absurd freak death I've ever heard. And I wish it wasn't. I feel the cruelty when I say this is silly and bonkers. You take it away, Ashley. (laughs) I just wish she had said a horrible freak car accident and left it at that. Google was not invented yet. I never would have known the truth. This is information that should be for laughter for their family only. She actually backs it up with the entire order of events of that day. There was a rodeo in town. A horse had not performed to its owner's liking. Its owner was a 13-year-old boy. And the 13-year-old boy hit the horse. And the horse was so upset and it fled the rodeo and ran across the highway and then stood in a ditch. And then just as Sarah and her boyfriend were driving, the horse leapt out of the ditch and went through the windshield and landed on Sarah. The boyfriend had but a scratch, but Sarah had been through a car trampled by a horse and did not make it. I'm so sorry, Sarah. I'm not laughing. I'm not laughing either. Yes, you are. I'm crying. It's a tragedy. You say death by trampled by a horse through a car. An anvil fell on her head. That happens to people. She slipped on a banana peel and fell on a train. It's so sad. And this changed the course of Jessica Simpson's entire life. She is so inspired by Sarah. Here's something that really stresses me out. Dude, is it going to be the letters? No, it's going to be the fact that she found out Sarah kept diaries and the whole family went and read them. And Jessica's like, and I started keeping diaries so that when I die, people can read them. And I'm like, bitch, that is not what a diary is for. I wonder if Sarah knew that everyone was going to read her diaries. I really feel like that's a violation of privacy. Unless you led a country to war, I don't think we should get to know your inner thoughts. Yeah. I feel like the fact that everyone like gathered around and was like, oh, she left these for us. Like, no, I don't believe that. I think diaries can only be read once everybody you knew in real life died. Yes. Okay. I think that if in a hundred years people found Sarah's diaries, they could be published into like a book of some kind. But the fact that they were like, oh, these are for us. Ain't no way. Okay. What stressed me out is that it was the week of graduation for Sarah from high school. And after she died, two to three days later, everybody in her graduating class received a letter from her. And it turns out randomly she had sent handwritten notes to everybody in her class being like, I hope if you ever find God, you come to me. I'm always here to talk to you about Christ and I'm praying for you and I wish you the best and may his power be with you or something. Can you fucking imagine receiving that letter from a dead girl? Horrifying. I would become so devout. Same. One gal can make a difference. I'm sorry. If somebody in my high school class died in a freak accident, if they had been trampled by a horse through a car (laughs) and then I got a letter or I'd be like, I don't know, where was God when you needed him the most? (laughs) Anyway, so Jessica takes on Sarah's mission. She feels she's inherited Sarah's life's work and she wants to keep her memory alive. We are on this earth for a short time. What message did I want to leave behind? So she starts journaling. God and Sarah began to keep me accountable. So I stuck with it. I listed the people I prayed for and the things that scared me. And as I wrote, I started to get to know myself better, writing myself for what was before me. 
Okay, can I say one last thing about the Sarah Chronicles? Sure. The mother of the boy who kicked the horse made him call Sarah's mom and apologize. Yeah. And Sarah's mom forgave him, which is huge. I guess, like, what else would you say? I don't know, but that's a lot to put on a 13-year-old boy. Yeah, but I will say I can't believe those motherfuckers raised someone who was, like, hitting animals. Okay, au contraire. I can't believe those motherfuckers put a 13-year-old in charge of a horse. That's so true. I do think maybe that was too much pressure to put on a 13-year-old to be like, our family's livelihood rests on if you can control this beast. Yeah. I do think that creates an adversarial relationship between the 13-year-old boy and the horse, neither of whom should really be put to work at this level. How very poetic that Jessica Simpson was soon forced to wrangle the beast that is fame. (laughs) Did it land on her? Yes, in many ways. (laughs) I don't know if there's a word for it, but there has to be something that means the opposite of mansplaining. Like when you hear someone talking about something and you're like, oh, all I want is to hear you talk about that for a hundred hours longer. Luckily, there is Masterclass. And you can hear Alicia Keys talk about soundwriting and producing, Questlove talking about music, curation, and DJing, incredible topics, everything that you've ever thought. Well, I wish an expert could teach me more. On Masterclass, they can. With Masterclass, you can learn from the best to become your best anytime, anywhere, at your own pace. Annual memberships start at $10 a month and you get unlimited access to every instructor, thousands of online lessons, exclusive content, insights, and so much more. There are over 180 classes to pick from. Everything from mindfulness and meditation to Texas-style barbecue from Aaron Franklin himself. One time, me and my family waited for like four hours outside of his barbecue restaurant in Austin. And then my dad talked to him and it was like he met a celebrity. But if you join Masterclass, you can just hear him without waiting in line for hours. You guys know I love to hear people yammer about topics they're passionate about. And I love listening to people talk about music, even though I am never going to sing a song. But Christina Aguilera talking about singing your heart out, sign me up. You can find practical takeaways that you can apply to your life and work. If you run a business, you can use Masterclass to help your team gain new skills in as little as 10 minutes on your phone, computer, tablet, smart TV, and even just in audio mode to listen on the go. How much would it cost to take one class from the world's best? Well, with Masterclass annual membership, it only costs $10 a month. Get unlimited access to every class. And right now, as a Celebrity Memoir Book Club listener, you can get 15% off when you go to masterclass.com worm. That's masterclass.com slash worm for 15% off an annual membership. Masterclass.com slash worm. So here's a problem I have with Jessica Simpson. Sure. And I say this genuinely. I think it's a good book. I think she's a good person. My heart is with her. And I don't knock this. I like the revealingness of it. I like the honesty of how obvious her insecurities are and how hard she writes into them in a way that I don't know if she's aware of how much she's giving away. But I don't think it's bad because I think it gives you like a real insight into her. Her two big insecurities are one, that she's not that smart. Yes. She wants you to believe she's smart. And then two, that she is like a really good and pious person. And so she's always writing these lines. We skipped them earlier, but she talks about the first time she baptized herself and why actually the Southern Baptists are a really good group of people because it's so about freedom of choice. And it's all about the choice to baptize yourself whenever you feel God calling. And I'm like, totally. I think there's a lot of like loosey-goosey live life by your own rules within the Baptist community. (laughs) But she's like, I only ever went once because that's truly when I felt God call me. But a lot of people went up every week because they just liked attention. I would roll my eyes at them. And then she has a lot of things about how much good she does. 
She loves to like volunteer at an orphanage. She's like really into performing for the troops. First of all, the one grace I gave myself is I distinctly remember from the last time I read this book that there's so much trips to Afghanistan. And I said, Claire, you don't have to read that. So I skipped those. I did read all of the charity stuff, but there is a lot of like, I went to an orphanage and you'll never believe it. But I thought I was saving those kids, but really those kids saved me. Oh, this line I think is crazy. So she's getting ready to go mainstream. She's done with the Christian circuit of music. But this also coincides with a mission trip they go on. And she goes, we drove up to the two-story complex, which is an orphanage. We weren't a bunch of pampered extras from Clueless. We'd seen poverty up close on mission trips before. As a group, we'd traveled to the Bowery Mission in New York to sing and serve at a soup kitchen. And we'd done vacation Bible schools in Belize, where our van broke down in the jungle. I mean, I don't know what you're trying to sell here, but I'm not buying You can't be a bunch of like fucking rich kids from Texas and be like, listen, we might have been a bunch of rich kids from Texas, but with my own eyeballs, I knew that there was poor people. But this was poorer than poor. I'm not pampered. I've seen poor before. Lots of other rich kids didn't even know about it. (laughs) I don't even think they're rich, but I do think that whole like surf and serve. In the morning, you take surf lessons and at night you babysit locals. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Just send them the $10,000. I think that would go further. And again, I do believe that in her heart, her mission is to do good, whereas I believe that there are other people on this mission and honestly, probably the people leading the mission who like in their heart was to tell other people that they were good. So I like don't blame her for it, but I'm still rolling my eyes. So anyway, around this time, she got a entertainment lawyer named Tim Mandelbaum through her vocal coach, Linda. And then when she was on this trip, they got an important call that someone named Teresa La Barbera Whites, a Dallas-based A&R rep for Columbia under Sony, was interested in meeting her. And they were like desperate to meet her. What had happened was this entertainment lawyer that she got set up a bunch of record label meetings for her in New York City. So after the orphanage visit, they were going to fly straight to New York. And this Teresa was like, I need to meet you now before you get up to New York. And Teresa is nine months pregnant. And gets on a flight and like flies to San Antonio to meet her in the lobby of a hotel and see if she can sing the way she sings on the demo. Yeah. And of course, you see Jessica and you go, you got those pipes and that face and those (laughs) tatas. I'm going to make you a star. You say tata, I say cha-ching. So they have a meeting scheduled with Epic. They have a couple big meetings scheduled. I will say Teresa was also working with one Beyonce Knowles. So now we know she was quite reputable at the time. She was just a random pregnant lady in the lobby of a hotel. But Teresa says, I can get you straight to Tommy Mottola, which we know is a huge deal. He is in the process of reeling from the loss of Mariah Carey. He's looking for his next big pop gal. So she's walking around in New York City doing all of these meetings. And she's like, my dad is getting better and better at the sales pitch. And some of them I just start singing. And then some of them, they listen to the demo and look at me. But what should happen? Her mother's prophecy from the days of the Mickey Mouse Club comes foretold. When she initially did not get the gig, her mom said, remember these girls, I think they're going to come up later in your life and you're going to meet them again. And sure enough, first she goes to Jive. When I sang, I will always love you. They were direct with me. We just signed a girl who's just like you and sang that same song. The girl is Britney Spears. So then they go to RCA. They had just signed Christina Aga something, the guy said. Aguilera, I said, holding back a sigh. She's really talented. Then they go to Columbia Records and they're like, okay, we are actually obsessed with you. So she ends up going with Columbia Records. As soon as she goes back to New York to officially sign with Columbia Records, they sign the forms and Tommy Mottola is like, incredible stuff. Can't wait to see you lose 15 pounds. And she's like, I'm sorry, what? He goes, that's what you're going to have to lose to become Jessica Simpson. And she's like, okay. So they put her on a diet immediately. Her mom is like, it's okay. We could do it together. I have a friend who's on a diet. 
Her parents never once defend her. Yeah. And she explains, we were podunk coming to the big time from nowhere. Any industry room we walked into, whoever was in there had more experience. This is how it's done was all we needed to hear. We didn't know if things were being done the right way or if we were being mistreated. We were just glad to be in the room. I mean, and this is obviously what they target. They're not going for people who understand their value and are going to stand up to them. They say, you're a nobody. I need someone I can manipulate. And they find these fucking teenagers with huge tits with parents that are desperate. (laughs) So somehow her dad gets put in contact with some billionaire from Dallas who gives him $275,000 of seed money to invest in Jessica Simpson's early career. She goes on later to be like, I don't think this was a good deal. I think my dad might even try to screw that guy over. The reason she left her dad as a manager is she's like, he was constantly making horrible deals and burning bridges for me behind my back and like ruining my good name. So, of course, now that they have $275,000 in the Jessica Simpson account, her dad retires immediately and becomes a full-time manager. Her mom picks up a side hustle as someone who medium flips houses, just kind of stages and redecorates houses so that realtors can sell them. And they live in the houses while she's redecorating them. So they're moving all around Los Angeles while her mom just like redecorates houses and they pick up and move again. It sounds insanely chaotic. Meanwhile, Teresa is back from her two-week maternity leave and she is taking Jessica all over town, having her meet with songwriters so they can write songs. They're like, this girl can really sing. What can you do for her? But every time they do a song, the record gets pushed back because first Britney drops and then Christina drops. And the way that Britney Spears' record like ruined everybody's lives because immediately everybody was like, well, we need a Britney on our label. Yeah. Her talent was too powerful. But she did this song called Did You Ever Love Somebody? You may remember it. It's like, did you ever love somebody so much it made you cry? And she hears it on Dawson's Creek, and that's huge for her. And then also she's introduced to her handler, Casey Cobb, who you may now know as Donald Faison's wife, who I want to say is often portrayed in the media as just Jessica Simpson's assistant. And maybe she is at this point, but she was at Columbia Records for a while as a handler, then an A&R person. And then she became Jessica Simpson's full-time assistant. And then she went back into the music industry. And I don't think she was ever Jessica's assistant again. Or maybe she was, but I think she was more like the CEO of Jessica's life. Anyway, I just feel like they always make her seem like old days Steph Shep or like Kim Kardashian to Paris Hilton circa 2004. I think she was a lot more successful than that. And I would just like to give Casey Cobb her freaking duh. Yeah. Anyway, so Casey Cobb becomes like a big sister to her. She's always advocating for Jessica. And then they're like, whatever, we need your dad to have a co-manager for a little bit because he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. And they introduce them to this guy named Paris Dijon, which is such an incredible name. I love him so much. And then Paris Dijon has another client named Nick Lachey and their eyes meet across the room. And hello, my life, I thought she writes. She says, it's easy to fall in love with somebody from a boy band, but then it's hard to stay in love because when you have a crush on this guy and all his other fans have already done all the research, you're like, I know that he likes dogs and I know that he's a Scorpio and I know that he loves the Bengals, the home team of his adopted hometown of Cincinnati. Okay, she always calls Cincinnati Nick Lachey's adopted hometown. And this is something that I remember from the first time we read this book. And it is something that keeps me up at night. I wonder if Nick Lachey lost a lawsuit. Like he said, Cincinnati is my hometown. And they said, that's illegal. You can't say that. Yeah, they were like, do not fucking say that about us. I actually Googled where he's from. He was born somewhere else and then like raised in Cincinnati. And so I wonder if he's like, oh, Cincinnati is like my hometown. But at what point can you say that it's your hometown? If you move there for elementary school, I feel like that's still home. You don't have to be born there. I guess Hoboken isn't my hometown because I was technically born in the Montclair Hospital. Exactly. So I guess Hoboken's kind of your adopted hometown. <laughs> 
Anyway, so she falls in love with him. They keep bumping into each other. They see each other at a teen people thing. And he goes up and he's with his mom. And he says, Mom, your mission for tonight is to get me in good with this girl. Do you want to read what he was wearing at this I was event? literally, you cut me off just in the nick of time to set me up. <laughs> he was wearing red overalls with the left strap off and a cream turtleneck. I want everyone to close your eyes. I can't. Everyone close your fucking eyes. We're doing a meditation. You walk into a room. It's the party of the year. You're surrounded by the hottest teens in town who are actually in their early 20s but being marketed to teens. You glance around. Piercing blue eyes pierce through your skin. Everywhere you look, cameras are flashing. Appetizers are being passed out. And your eyes lock with a man wearing a cream turtleneck and red overalls, one strap hanging off. What do you do? God, I guess you marry him. (laughs) Anyway, so they start dating. Right away, she's like, I have to tell you something. I'm a virgin. He says, that's okay. I also want to remind you guys, because I don't think we said it yet. At this point, he's 25 and she's 18. But even though she's a virgin, he immediately breaks up with his makeup artist girlfriend to start dating her. Nick went back to touring and we had three-hour phone calls from his bus or his hotel room after the show. That was it for me. We were totally dating, at least over the phone. I wrote about him in my journal calling him Nicholas because it made me feel older and closer to his age. So early on, their dynamic is very, he's the old wise one with experience in the industry and she's young and new and looking to him for advice. It makes him clash with her dad quite a lot because her dad doesn't like that there's someone else Jessica is going to and trusting for advice and information. She ends up getting a gig opening for 98 Degrees. And they're like, what should we do with Ashley, though? And they're like, maybe she could be the backup dancer. So at 14 years old, Ashley is taken out of high school. We need the Ashley Simpson autobiography. I, like, need to hear it. If it's true, Ashley Simpson, if we want your auto, want your autobiography, baby, just ask you. We're asking you. Please, Ashley Simpson, write the memoir. What was it like to have to be dragged from school to school to not even get to live your dream living in the shadows of someone else's dream, trying to find a handle to hold that every touch felt cold to me. <laughs> living in a new day. You met a man who made you want a lala. So that's good. In the kitchen on the floor. I wonder if I like had a pen and paper and an afternoon I could write every lyric of that CD because that was my favorite CD of all time. I bet you could. I believe in you. And I actually say this to you, Ashley Simpson. Those songs hold up. Me too. I say that too. So she's on tour with 98 Degrees and All of the bitches hate her. She'll like go out to open for 98 Degrees. And of course, the audience is all people who want to boink everyone in 98 Degrees. And so they're like, who's this girl with big boobs? I want her dead. So it's not that fun, but it is fun to be on tour with her boyfriend. One thing that sucks is that he drinks beer. He's 25 years old and her dance teacher who's on tour with them confronts him and says, oh my gosh, why are you drinking a beer? She let him have it, going on about how I was around and how he was supposed to be a role model for young people. Poor Nick went to my parents' hotel room with his hangdog face. I apologize if I disrespected you or the family, he said. For me, drinking a beer isn't wrong, but I really love Jessica. And again, I'm sorry if I disrespected the family. Then their relationship escalates a bit. She agrees to let him grab the boob. She goes to Victoria's Secret with her mom. She's like 18 or 19 years old at this point. And they pick out a bra for her first boob touch. And I will say this shit upsets me because I do think it contributes to unwanted pregnancies, sexual assault. Like, I do think that this level of obsessive purity is so bad for people. I obviously think you should do what you want to do. But I think the pressure from outside forces to, like, maintain certain levels of purity that don't align with your personal beliefs and, like, not being allowed to explore what your personal beliefs even are can be really dangerous for people. 
My career started picking up in April when the Dawson's Creek soundtrack that included my song came out. I played track 13 over and over again, imagining people all over the world playing it too. Nick's 98 album went platinum, so his record company threw them a party after our show at the Beacon Theater. She's falling apart. She has the busiest schedule that anyone's ever had. And she is in so much pain. And then she finds out that she has a cyst in her fallopian tube and she has to get the whole tube yanked. And they end up being able to do it through her belly button so she doesn't have a scar because overall, her biggest fear is how it will hurt her career. Her second fear is will it impact her ability to have children? And overall, this is a very anxiety-inducing situation for her. And they're like, when can you get back on the road, though? The schedule was so packed, it just didn't seem manageable. But my dad and I never said no. I wasn't looking at the schedule and saying that's a lot. It was Nick who would question how things were being set up. My dad would then get annoyed because he wanted me out there and working and meeting people. Of course, her songs aren't doing as well as they had hoped. And Tommy Matola is basically like, we need you skinnier, sluttier. He says, I want a six pack for the next video. Janet Jackson abs. She has a little candid moment at a show where her pants split and they like deal with the wardrobe malfunction really quick. And then she gets back out there and says, like, I don't know who saw my booty, but I'm going to sing it off. And people love this moment. The fact that she remembers this moment so vividly, people like when they see the real her. But every person in power is telling her to like be this pop star. So she doesn't know that she can be herself and have people still love that. She's learning heavy duty choreo. She's trying to get her stomach cut. She's really hard on herself. She's saying, like, I need to be fit. She's starving herself. They send her a trainer who makes her sing as she runs. And she just can't get a six pack. That's just not how her body works. It eventually goes on to go double platinum. But her first album, Sweet Kisses, only sells 65,000 copies. Britney sold twice as much that first week. I reminded my dad, though I knew he knew the exact number. We were in another hotel room. I was now someone who knew enough about the industry that I could throw around numbers, but not so much that I knew how to get them. I mean, she is determined to succeed. And she sees a lot of the flaws in why her album didn't succeed in her body. She is starving herself more, forcing herself to do more sit-ups. She said she'd be so hard on herself and then she'd beat herself up for beating herself up. And then, of course, her body bottoms out again. She has major medical problems. She gets a kidney infection. And while she's recovering for 10 days in the hospital, Tommy Matola actually has Celine Dion call her and be like, I love your latest song. Keep it up. It's hard out there. And that just makes her life. And then she sees a bird out the window. A cardinal. Well, at first she thinks it's a bird that's supposed to fly south for the winter. And then she learns it's a cardinal and they're crazy enough to stick it out. Me too, I thought. And this is the first time I think in this book that I saw her like acknowledge her own desire to succeed in the entertainment industry. I feel like up until this point, and we're at page 141, it's all been external forces being like, keep going, keep going, keep going. Yeah, but also she has that thing from the time she was little that she wants to relieve her family of their financial problems. Yeah. So as 2000, her and Nick Cannon, who is this Nick Kroll, Nick Cannon? No, are it's, talking about? it's Nick Manillo. <laughs> Mr. Manila. So Nick Lachey of 98 Degrees. Thank you. The host of Love is Blind, you don't recognize him because it looks like he's wearing a Nick Lachey filler mask, but that's actually Nick Lachey. So they are beginning to be known as like a PR power couple. They are hosting MTV's New Year's Eve party. Who would have thought that this was just the beginning of his very successful hosting career? Well, she actually says he was a really good host and he was always pushing them to do more hosting together because like as a duo, they were more popular. And she was like, I wasn't great at it, but he could talk to anybody. They were the cover of the very first issue of Teen Vogue as a couple, which is crazy. And it was huge for both of their careers because in order to get people to subscribe to Teen Vogue, Vogue sent the issue to every subscriber of regular Vogue. 
And they also did a duet, which did not help them. It seemed even from the beginning that there were such signs of what was to come, which is that one, people were really interested in them as a couple, as personalities, but not so interested in them as a couple musically. Yes. She also recognizes that I entered the relationship as Nick's plus one. So their relationship thrives when he can explain to her how things work. He loves to kind of father her in this way that is so toxic. It also comes out that she's a virgin. They say it casually in one magazine interview. And when it blows up and becomes the headline, they're so scared of the backlash. But actually, a ton of girls respond positively, being like, I'm so pressured to be sexualized and I really appreciate having a role model. And then that becomes the bit. Not to her, but to everyone who interviews them. Like, how could this man at 25 not have sex with his girlfriend? Like that poor, long-suffering boyfriend who won't get to get laid in this sexy little virgin. They are just like in this relationship where they're trying to see each other every two weeks. They go to Hawaii. She gets drunk for the first time. They really do have this relationship of like, he's the knowing daddy. And she's a little girl who feels woozy when she drinks. She also talks about how around this time her parents started drinking. And she's not really sure when. But she's like, I know we weren't going to church. I know my parents drank alcohol. Things were a different. Around that time, I taped a Disney special with Nick. And looking back, I can see the beginning of the roles we would play later. They filmed us at the beach. This is where I like to take Jessica on all our hot dates. He said, I'm a real big spender. $3 to park. We were just goofy and fun. They really were like, you need to be sexy to boys in order to up your sales. And so she gets on the Atkins diet hardcore. And her mom is like, great, I can help you with this. And I'm just like, no, tell her not to. When she urged me to exercise, it told me she was going for a long walk and maybe I should come. I knew what she meant. We ended up doing the Atkins diet together. Oh, yeah. She starts having her, you know, classic little Jessica Simpson media flubs and they force her to go to media training. She's presenting something at the U.S. Open. It's an Arthur Ashe award or they're celebrating Arthur Ashe's impact. And she turns to Andre Agassi and says, this is such a great event you put on. And everyone's like, wait, does she think Andre Agassi is Arthur Ashe, a black tennis player who died of AIDS? And they're like, you had to go to media training. <laughs> Can I say I blame them? Me too. She was doing like 10 to 15 events a week. They would just be like, you have to go here, you have to go here. They needed to be prepping her. Well, they needed to tell her, you're doing this Arthur Ashe event. This is who Arthur Ashe is. Yeah. She says even almost more than the flubs was the fact that when she would get interviewed, she was too honest about how hungry she was and how jealous she was of other girls. They're like, you're making being a pop star look hard. And that's not the gimmick. The gimmick is, oh, me, I just had fun with my friends. And we put together these songs. Yeah. She also was saying things like when people asked if fame was hard, I would just take the bait and say that I thought Britney was the nicest girl, but maybe Christina didn't need to have her security clear an entire hallway of staff and talent just so she could walk through it alone. Oh, God. I was too honest to play the game. You were too honest to play the game, my friend. She is like just an earnest sweetie who like is wrong sometimes. So her and Nick, it's October 2000. Things are moving. She's 20. He's 27. He's ready to settle down. But the problem is she's so young and her dad hates him. Her dad is like, do not marry him. You don't even know who you are. Take it slow. I do think that her dad was actually completely correct, but coming from the wrong place. Like he didn't like that there was another man in her life that she listened to. And he didn't like the lack of control that came from her caring about someone else's opinion. But she is 20 years old and she shouldn't have wanted to get married. <laughs> she also says Nick is struggling with the fact that 98 Degrees is a far and away third place. I mean, there was Backstreet Boys, there was NSYNC, and then 98 Degrees was like the most Walmart brand boy band of all time. They sold 275,000 albums in their first week, whereas NSYNC has sold 2 million. And I think that was getting to him too. At least they weren't O-Town. Dream Street? I mean, Dream Street was a fucking hit-making group. I can name 100 Dream Street songs before I can name one 98 Degrees song. Just kidding. I do remember Give Me Just One Night, Una Noche. Una Noche. 
<laughs> you taught them that phrase. Sorry, give me just one night, parentheses, una noche. I loved the amount of punctuation that was in song titles in the early 2000s. The way that there was always parentheses, ellipses, they would just like make those song titles full on sentences. It was so punk rock. Baby, dot, 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 one more time. Yes. Did that title open with dot, 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 one more time? I think it was dot, 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 oops, I did it again. Thank you. What an insane way to start a song title with a pause. (laughs) Were you speaking? We'll stop some longer and then go. I also think Baby One More Time might have had like a parentheses hit me in it somewhere. It's impossible to know. I loved what they were doing with letters and numbers like slave number four, letter U. Yes, literally. It was so good. Go back to it. Olivia Rodrigo, if you're listening, you're our only hope. Okay, so... So you can see the problem setting in. He wants a wife and he also wants a better career and he's not getting anything. They're spending a week in his adopted hometown of Cincinnati. They kind of realize they're never going to get to where they need to be career wise. Her career is also going down to Tommy Matola leaves Columbia. Now Don Einer, who has a reputation for screaming a lot, is her boss and he does not like the numbers he's been putting up. And he's basically like, you have to get even skinnier. She gets down to 103 pounds and they're like skinnier, sexier. She puts out irresistible. She doesn't feel good recording that video. And it's so sad because when you watch it now, you're like, wow, she's so sexy. Almost like she's irresistible. She looks irresistible in that video. They fucking nailed it. But in her heart, she didn't feel irresistible because they were so mean to her. The choreographer is trying to get her to feel sexy. He's like, I wish you could see in you what I see in you. And she's like, oh, my God, I have butterflies. How could I have butterflies for anybody but the man I'm dating? And suddenly they're questioning things. He goes to Asia. They're not really talking. They're always stressed at each other. Everything she says annoys him. He has come to resent the role that she's forced to play in his life. He doesn't like the way she's like an innocent little bird and he's the dad. She writes in her journal, when someone special comes into your life at 18 years old, your whole world changes. For a while, I was so caught up in the puppy love. I could only see perfection. I wanted to take the easy way out and just get married. Thank you, God, for providing me a way to step back and reevaluate my needs. These past couple of weeks, I've found myself, I can do it. People don't have to do it for me. Ugh, but God, you will never fucking guess what happens next. So basically, then she has this huge record party. She's doing really well. People are celebrating her. Nick is getting jealous. They go on a break. Yes, so they break up. And then right after, Columbia throws her this huge party, a sauna yacht. Irresistible did really well. Sweet Kisses is doing really good. Oh my God, we are struck by a plane. (laughs) Just when you thought everything in the world was perfect, what should happen? 9-11. So the towers go down. Their love goes up. He was in New York. He's so scared. She's like, it makes me realize that I can't live without you. Do you think Osama bin Laden had that in his mind? Do you think he said, America has had two atrocities. One is Desert Storm and the havoc they have wreaked on the Middle East. And two is that they couldn't find a way to get Nick and Jessica together. But I have an idea. I have one perfect plan. I mean, honestly, can I say, if Osama bin Laden gave us newlyweds on purpose, I think we have to rethink the way we talk about him in history. (laughs) Ashley, this is the episode that I think gets us canceled. (laughs) Okay, you guys, you heard it here first. Claire Parker doesn't think we ever should have had the show newlyweds. You heard it here first. Ashley loved 9-11. So Nick and Jessica got back together. It was just assumed they would marry, even though they're not like officially engaged. At the start of 2002, I knew Nick was going to propose. So did my dad. He didn't like it. They decide on an October wedding. 
My father was awful through the whole engagement. There's just no nice way to put it. He continually told me I was making a mistake and told Nick to his face that I was too young to get married. It was another thing for my parents to fight over since my mom always took Nick's side when he would criticize me over something new. What you have to understand about my mom is that she's a tough crowd. My dad is a people pleaser, but people have to work to impress her. To this day, I think a lot of what I do is to win her approval. Her backing up whatever cutting thing Nick said to me gave it more weight and gave him license to do it more. That is a hefty paragraph. That is a lot. I'm sorry. Whatever cutting thing Nick said to you, your mom. That Okay. The way that she structures that paragraph is so interesting to me because she's like, yeah, my dad just was not nice at the time. He did not think at 20 years old I should be marrying this man I recently broke up with. And uh, it also like caused a lot of fights between them because my mom historically helped my boyfriend abuse me emotionally. That's a hefty dose. Nick and I developed a reliable cycle. He would criticize me for something small and I would blow it up to make it something larger in our relationship or the pressure I was under in my career. He would feel attacked and raise his voice and then I would say, screw you and pout like a child. She also says, I had upped my dosage of diet pills and was eating even less to be super thin for the wedding. Speedy and hungry, I was easy to set off. It was rainy on their wedding day. My father was a rain cloud all his own. He picks a fight with Nick's family at the rehearsal dinner. I mean, Jesus Christ. Yeah, and then he's like crying, walking her down the aisle, but not in a good way, in a bad way. He tries to get her to run away. They're getting out of the limo to go into the church. And he's like, what if we just stay in the limo? And she's like, dad, I want to marry him. So this is an interesting pattern I've noticed with people who are child stars. The only two I can specifically think of right now are Brooke Shields and Jessica Simpson. But I do feel like it's something we see where in order to start to free yourself from a toxic family dynamic, you have to enter a toxic marriage dynamic because it is like an easier... Mariah Carey. Mariah Carey. It's like a one-step looser shackle to shackle yourself into because a family, you're like supporting a whole family. A marriage, it's just one person that's controlling you. I don't really know how to explain it. Also, I think the boundaries of a marriage are slightly more defined because there's so much you have to get from one person. Yeah. And it's almost easier to be like, I can't take this anymore. I'm not getting what I need from a partner. Jeanette McCurdy could be another example just because the way she entered that relationship with that old dude. Yeah. Like they didn't get married, but it seems like it took an older man to step in and like fill the parental And role. especially with a daughter, I feel like even the most controlling parents still respects the bounds of like another man buying control. Maybe Stephanie from Full House did it too. Yeah. They all get married really young because I feel like they think they've grown up so fast because they're financially stable. But also in order to free themselves of this dynamic, they have to enter into another dynamic. And so I do think it is interesting that if you were to just walk away from your parents and say, no, I'm independent, they would be like, absolutely the fuck not. But if you say, I have a husband, that is something that they have to respect more. So her dad is blubbering down the aisle because he's losing soul control. Right out the gate, the dad pitches newlyweds and they're on TV. My dad decided Nick and I were a 21st century version of I Love Lucy. So early on, the producers were positioning Drew and Leah as our Fred and Ethel. It was one giant learning curve, figuring out how to be married and how to create content for a kind of show that had never been done before. And by never been done before, they mean it had like semi been done rarely, like the Osbournes had premiered, but nothing at this level, I think, existed. It became such a smashing success. Dad's theory was that this would get me and my music on MTV, who never played my videos unless it was on TRL, while also undoing the damage of how I'd been marketed by the labels. If girls knew you, they'd like you. Columbia's been pushing them with all this sexy Barbie stuff. This show would be about your heart. She also decides to try and write her own music. Teresa's helping her work with songwriters. She writes With You, which is uh, just an absolute banger. I love that song. I should add that to my wedding list. Yes. 
Did we do how our weeks were like? No. Oh my God. Do you guys want to know how our weeks were? Claire, you just got married. (laughs) I think it went good. I hope it went better than Nick and Jessica's. Okay, let me just do our announcements really quickly. If I just got married, that means we are headed to the Twin Cities and Chicago literally next week. We still have some tickets left for our first Chicago date. And we still have some tickets left for Twin Cities. Please, 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 please come. And it also means that soon we're doing DC and Philly. And it also means Nashville and Atlanta. And it also means Denver and San Francisco. Please come on out and see us live. It's so fun. It's not just like a live episode. It's like stand up and games. You'll enjoy it. You'll get a kick out of it. I love you guys so much. Okay, back to Jess. <laughs> so she's obsessed with making sure her marriage looks perfect. That is the one thing that she doesn't want to be messy about. She doesn't care if people think that she's a silly, goofy idiot. She cares if people think that her marriage isn't all it's cracked up to be. We could say stop rolling at any time, but in the beginning, we tried not to. They would get to our house about 8.30 or 9 o'clock and just try to push it so they could stay as late as possible. I was used to the feeling of being watched, but now we wanted to embrace reality in ourselves as much as possible, even if they would put us into situations to get a story for that episode. The show comes out. It is huge. People lose it. Her album is also timed with the premiere of the show, In This Skin. Her dad was right. People who dismissed me as a Britney bot now heard me in a completely different way. However, the beginning of their marriage is tough. They had gone on to this marriage expecting to take on the traditional gender roles of her being a stay-at-home wife, cooking and cleaning, with all this new stuff she got from William Sonoma, and he'd be out making money. However, he just left 98 Degrees to launch his solo career, and it was going pretty bad. Meanwhile, her career was ramping up hotter than ever, and she was always gone. And she's like, I would come home from three weeks away, having not unpacked, and like be home for two days, and he would want me to cook and clean. And meanwhile, I still had shit in a suitcase and hadn't even opened any of the boxes. They were also so famous. This show skyrocketed them. People were obsessed with them. When the relationship started, he was definitively in the power position. I mean, she was opening up for him. We've seen this time and time again. Now people are more interested in her. They like them as a couple, but they are going to do Rolling Stone and they're shooting the cover and on set, they're like, actually, they just want Jessica. And that must have been quite crushing. When Nick accused me of being a spoiled brat, I knew how to handle that one. I knew I was spoiled and I was working on that. But then when he said, go away and leave me alone, I slipped. I am away. I said, I'm always away. Oh, boo freaking who he spat. You know what? Sob, sob. Like, I'm not doing the same shit you are. Don't say it, Jessica. I thought, too real, too real. But it was out of my mouth before I could stop it. I said, you're not doing half of what I'm doing, baby. So she calls back to this time when they were making the deal for the show. Because Nick was on a different label... At her label, they acknowledged, they said, you know, in this situation, there's going to be a winner and a loser. And I hope our girl is the winner. And she says the problem was if Nick lost, so did I. And she's constantly in these relationships. And it's very classic male-female dynamic where if the girl is beating the man, everybody's losing. And if the man is beating the woman, that's standard. And by beating, I mean more successful than. When we started filming season two on our first anniversary, we and the whole crew knew the stakes. Whatever we needed to do to keep that ATM spitting money out would be fine with us. And so like the first episode of season two is supposed to be Nick surprising Jessica while she's performing with a romantic weekend in New York City. And she said it's just so embarrassing because back then people didn't understand that most of it was done by production and they had set up this gorgeous romantic weekend away with rose petals and they had shipped out an identical piece of cake that looked like their wedding cake. And Jessica says something like, oh, do you remember the first song we danced to? And he couldn't. And she was just like, Jesus Christ, they set this up for you. And you came to remember our wedding last year. Like things were bad. We had become actors in our own lives, playing ourselves. Worse, we slowly started acting out our parts, even when cameras weren't rolling. 
How was I supposed to live a healthy, real life filtered through the lens of reality show? If my personal life was my work, my work required me to play a certain role. Who was I anymore? I had no idea who I really was. But fame and money are great distractions. She starts doing record signings for In This Skin and they have to cancel them because too many people are showing up. She's so famous all of a sudden. So even though her album In This Skin like blows up and does really, really well, Nick sells like 20,000 albums. It does abysmally. I think we could fit them all in the palm of our hand. Okay, wait. The Arthur Ashe one I got, but this Jessica Simpsonism is silly. What? She's invited to the White House and she meets the Secretary of the Interior and she says, oh my gosh, I love what you've done with the place. <laughs> At least I made it to the White House again. I couldn't believe my good fortune. I don't think Nick could either. In countless interviews, people asked him in front of me if he was jealous. Her success is my success, he said again and again. So convincingly, even I almost believed him. Now we're in the third year of their marriage and it is fucking bad. She assumes he's cheating all the time. They never see each other. When they do see each other, they're fighting. They're paparazzi magnets. They're always faking it in public. She's gone. They fight. She freezes. He says whatever mean thing he wants to her. I could feel him trying to like me, but everything I did seemed to annoy him. And I think this is actually so grown up of her to have this understanding that he simply did not like her. He liked nursing this baby bird through the early stages of her career and taking credit for it. I couldn't imagine telling people I wanted a divorce, though. For generations, my family passed down a marriage guide that only had one tip. Hang in there. I was afraid of letting everyone down. So she's trying to get into acting, and she lends the role of Daisy motherfucking Duke. She went up against Mandy Moore and Jessica Biel for this role, but they were like, I mean, that's Daisy Duke. Okay, not even they, just Johnny Knoxville. He said that they met and their chemistry was off the charts and he picked her. Boy, was their chemistry off the charts. So they go out there. They're shooting in New Orleans. She brings her friends and a little entourage and she gets to live in a house. And it's the first time in her life she's living with her friends in a dorm situation that doesn't have a dad or a husband present. And she has a lot of fucking fun and falls head over heels in love with Johnny Knoxville. Something funny about this movie is she like falls in love with Johnny Knoxville and she becomes lifelong friends with Willie Nelson. Neither of these people call her her name. Willie Nelson only calls her Daisy to this day. And she's like, that's his little nickname for me. And I'm like, I wonder if he knows your real name. And then she's like, Johnny always called me Lady. That was his little nickname for me. Lady this, Lady that. And I'm like, I don't think either of them know what your name is. I guess I wonder if Johnny called her Lady so that if his wife heard him talking on the phone and he was like, Lady. <laughs> if his wife was like, hey, who are you talking to? He's like, the parking ticket lady. <laughs> Things were so bad between her and Nick at this point that the show tried to film them together, at least on FaceTime or like whatever FaceTime was back then. And she couldn't even fake it. She's like, I just don't like speaking to him. He doesn't want to hear about my day. And I honestly don't care about him recording his new album. So at this point, she's having a full blown emotional affair with Johnny Knoxville. And she's like, I know what you're thinking. If it's not physical, it doesn't count. But now that I had actually had sex, I knew that the emotional part was actually way more important. And she feels so guilty for this emotional romp. He has a wife and a daughter. And she would get drunk with him every night. And her drinking starts getting out of control. Casey Cobb goes, Jessica Simpson, you don't need him to save you. You can save yourself. What you're doing is not right and it's not respectful to Nick. Either get in there and fix your marriage, really work on it, or you need to separate. But if you want to leave Nick, talk to him. Johnny's not a bad guy, but there's nothing healthy about this thing. Casey Cobb is a real voice of reason. And I will say, I know we said earlier that she deserves more credit than simply being on the payroll. But I do think that her relationship with Jessica has gone as long as it did is because of the times that she was on the payroll. I feel like Casey cut her out a couple of times because her behavior was just fucking wacky. And Casey was like, yeah, I'm not interested in this. Nick can tell that like something is up with Jessica. And of course, his possessiveness kicks in. So he moves to Baton Rouge so he can be with her. The newlyweds crew came to the scene hoping to get footage of us. I didn't want to be around him. And I think Nick was surprised that I wouldn't even do the bare minimum of playing along for the cameras. 
She talks about the paranoia of being taped constantly and how it affected their relationship. They used to have arguments in a parking lot near their house because even when the show wasn't shooting, they were just so concerned because they had hidden cameras all over their house because the camera people would leave at like 9 p.m. But then the show would shoot unless they were in the bedroom. It's so funny to hate someone so much that you like cross the street to have a fight with them. Yeah. Like there's times I'm starving and I'm like, what am I going to fucking get off my couch? No. Like there's times I like won't walk to my bed. The idea of hating my own husband so much that I'm getting up and out of the house, off my couch, out of my living room to like keep yelling more. Especially because usually people are like, oh, if you're feeling really angry, maybe go for a walk, get some fresh air. And they're like, okay, let me go for a walk and get some fresh air so that I can really fuel this fire, bitch. (laughs) When she got back, things were bad, but her and Johnny were still sending like very emotional emails and stuff. They try to go to couples therapy. And Nick stops showing up. They go to one and Nick just like never shows up again. And then they get into one of the most horrific fights I've ever heard of. They are drunk and screaming at each other. And she starts talking about her friends. He doesn't like when she has other influences in her life. Like she basically married her dad, honestly. So he doesn't like when other people are telling her what to do when she's opening up to other people. And she says, We were screaming back and forth. He was angry at me for a laundry list of reasons. I knew I deserved it. I was a terrible wife and he was a terrible husband. I started to speak. My friends say, Your friends don't exist, he spat. You just pay them to be around you. It was a knife cutting me down to the rawest marrow. My mouth dropped open. The only thing I always had was my friendships. I had been so cold, so unresponsive and for so long that he must have seen a flicker of something, so he twisted the knife. And your parents are only around because they're on your payroll. This is so fucked. That's such a mean thing to say to someone. So then she goes to Nairobi for Operation Smile and has a real, I didn't save them, they saved me. Blah, 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 blah. When I got back to America, I would make steps to start my new life. I had to escape and I wouldn't be leaving Nick to be with anyone. I was escaping to be with myself. She kind of realizes Johnny Knoxville's not ready to leave his wife. I think she was waiting for that parachute for him to be like, let's run away together. There's a line in my journal from that time that I kept returning to. We must be willing to get rid of the life we've planned so as to have the life that is waiting for us. It's a quote from Joseph Campbell, who studied mythology to describe what it takes to be a hero. That is a good quote. Write that one down. Yeah. She tells Nick that she wants a divorce, and he tells the press that he was blindsided. And she's like, how? We had hated each other for every day of our marriage. And honestly, up till their marriage. Yeah. I will say it feels very in line with what I've learned on TikTok about how men view relationships. (laughs) So her dad is like, I'm so proud of you. I wish I had the courage to do that with your mom. And she's like, what the fuck? And then she just kind of puts that moment out of her head for a long time until her dad actually does leave her mom. And she's like, oh, okay. She goes to her family's for Thanksgiving and her family is not supportive. Her mom and her grandmother are both like, can't you just work it out though? Just stick it out. And one day men change when they have grandchildren. In 70 years, he might soften because physically he's not tough enough anymore to be mean he won't have the heart strength for it his cholesterol will be so high and then he'll just sit in his rocking chair and he won't bother you anymore and then you can live whatever life you want and she's like um i don't think i can do it her mom is like you guys are a power couple and she's like why would we be a power couple it's not powerful to be liars she goes you're america's couple the mom is just as invested in the pr branding as they are i like can't imagine if my mom was like stay in a horrible marriage because what will america think yeah jesus christ I mean, right after the divorce breaks, now it's early December, and she is supposed to perform at a Christmas gala in Cincinnati, and she's like, what the fuck? How am I going to be in Nick's adopted hometown? (laughs) What if we're looking at it this way? What if we're looking at it like Cincinnati adopted him, but he adopted Cincinnati like a highway? 
Maybe he pays for all the street cleaning there. If anyone from Cincinnati can speak to Nick Lachey's influence there, I am really actually like genuinely in my heart of hearts interested in knowing how the city of Cincinnati thinks of Nick Lachey. They go into the house when Nick is out of town and she wants almost nothing except the dog. (laughs) She kidnaps his dog out of their house. I mean, their dog, but it was not discussed. He calls her crying and he's like, don't leave me. I love you. And she's like, love is not enough. We have to like each other too. And he's like, I'll go to couples counseling. And she's like, well, when I wanted to work on the relationship, you wouldn't show up to couples counseling. And I will give it to her. She really fucking nailed it. It's so sad that he's like just lying. (laughs) So now she's single for the first time and she's an adult and she's partying like crazy. She's having so much fun figuring out what kind of guys she actually likes because she just kind of picked Nick. Like Nick was the first guy she dated as an adult and then she married him. And she really gets into what we always suspected. She's like, when I wanted to date somebody, we had to do it privately. Otherwise, the press would assume we were together. So there is a way for celebrities to date privately. So if they're doing it publicly at the beginning, something is up. Nick Jonas and Priyanka. But she's like, I'm fucking every hot guy in the world. We're meeting on private jets in the back of hotels. She's like, I would just tell my agent that I liked him and his agent would tell him and then we would be boning and all of my friends were jealous. She does Employee of the Month, which is some of the worst acting I think I've ever seen in my life. Have you ever seen that movie? No. It's shocking. Is that the one with Dane Cook? Yeah. Ugh, I gotta see that. Meanwhile, Nick works on his next album called What's Left of Me about the divorce. And nobody wants to fucking hear it, but he does an interview with Rolling Stone where he says Jessica Simpson's a dumb bitch. Uh, Not literally, but he's really mean about her in the interview. He also had hired at the end of their marriage the Newlyreds crew to like follow him around to get footage of him shooting his new album. And he did a documentary about making the album. And he talks about how doing the Newlyweds show was kind of her idea and it ruined their marriage. And like that was the problem. And she's like, okay, so first of all, you hired the Newlyweds crew to record you saying that the Newlyweds crew ruined your marriage and you're so mad at them. And then also in it, he has a song that he shows his dad called I Can't Hate You Anymore. And she's like, okay, so he wrote that when we were together because that's when this crew was following him around and they had footage of it. So I was right. You did fucking hate me in our own marriage. I watched him portray himself as a victim, casting me as the selfish person. I felt manipulated into some revenge fantasy, but I had put myself in this situation. She gives people so much fucking grace. And so then, of course, they're trying to divorce. And now that she has all the money in the world, when they got together, it was a big like thing about would she sign the prenup because we have to protect Nick's assets. And of course, now she's worth a lot more. And she's finally like, Dad, give him whatever he wants. I'll make it back. I said, I promise I'll make it back. And then I did give or take a billion, which is one of the more badass lines I've ever heard. I love that. So she launches the Jessica Simpson collection. She gets an opportunity to do a celebrity line. And this is Some of the better business advice I think we've ever read or like business savviness we've ever read. So she goes to Vince Camuto, who sold Nine West for $900 million and makes a deal with him. And she has two things. One, she's like, we want to represent every woman at a reasonable price point. We wanted to have like real stuff. And I would wear the real stuff. Her mom comes up with this idea to do a licensing deal because she's like, whenever Jessica wears something and I pull it for her, it sells out. So let's cut out the middleman. We'll put Jessica in the clothes and it'll sell out immediately. And she really wants it to be accessible to her audience. She's like, I hate when someone asks me what I'm wearing and it's like a $900 pashmina. I want to wear things that people can buy. And so I'll just make the things and then people can buy them. And then the other thing she does is she signs an exclusivity contract with Vince Camuto. So now that they have the Jessica Simpson collection, they cannot just go around and sign any other celebrity name deal because of course, if 
they did that. It would dilute the amount of attention they're putting into her. And anytime her career and her name started to kind of slump in popularity, which of course there have been high times and low times, they probably would have just dumped her ass and found a new celebrity to be the face of a collection. So now she has this exclusivity deal and it's huge. However, around this time, I first met John Mayer a year before in February 2005 during a Grammy weekend. He had popped up and sent me an email being like, I love your music. I think you're so smart. I can't wait to see what woman you become. And Nick never liked him. He was always like, what is he doing here? And she's like, I don't know. But at this point, he had made moves and was very interested in her. So they start seeing each other and it was bad. From the get-go, she was so concerned about seeming smart around him. She was so worried that he wouldn't be impressed by her, but he is obsessed with her. His focus on me was the opposite of my marriage. I would go up to go to the bathroom and John would ask, where are you going? While I was married, my ex-husband couldn't be bothered to figure out what city I was in. It felt so safe to be desired. I knew John would never cheat on me and that confidence was a new feeling. Meanwhile, the public is so mad at her because she's been painted as a villain in this Nick situation. She puts out a song called I Belong to Me and everyone is mad at her because they're like, fuck off. And she puts out a public affair, which even though Billboard called it a perfect record, people weren't really that into it. So her career is on the downturn. The public is kind of mad at her. It really just sends her into John Mayer's manipulative, seedy little arms. They are dating in private. Somebody from her team leaks it to the press right around the time that both of them have albums coming out. And he's so disgusted to be associated with her and this kind of like lowbrow publicity that he breaks up with her by posting on his website the cover of Public Enemies, Don't Believe the Hype. I was humiliated and thought he was out of my life for good. He wasn't. They're broken up for a while and then they reconnect in London. She's obsessed with him and everybody's sick of hearing her talk about it. John loved me when I was shining and he drew strength and inspiration to write from that light. He would kind of interview her as dating because he was like mining her for content. (laughs) Also, he has this way of conversation that she says is like sparring where anything you say, he's going to question you and like bully you with it until you back down or prove him wrong. He dumped me, then come back saying he discovered he loved me after all. I always saw it as him mercifully taking me in from the cold. Every time John returned, I thought it was a continuation of a love story. He said a lot of our breakups were about me drinking and not being present for him, which was not, I would find out much later, the full truth. But I took him at his word. I was so afraid of disappointing him that I couldn't even text him without having someone check my grammar and spelling. This is so heartbreaking. She says, did he repeatedly stab me in the heart or did I just keep running into the knife he aimed at me? Oof. God, she tells this really awful story about getting to be part of this Dolly Parton tribute in D.C. with Condoleezza Rice. At the Kennedy Center. Steven Spielberg, Andrew Lloyd Webber, huge people. She's performing with like Shania Twain. Reese Witherspoon is there. They're doing nine to five. And instead of getting prepared, she spends the whole night beforehand just drinking and freaking out about texts he was sending her. He would break up with her and then send her love songs. And she would just stay up all night texting and crying and hysterically trying to decipher it. The next day, she's so anxious when he's texting her that she starts drinking and gets so drunk that when she goes out to perform, she forgets the lyrics. And then Dolly Parton is like, it's okay. I don't remember the lyrics either. And they say like, okay, once the audience clears out, we'll keep the band here and you can try again because we're recording this to air it. And she just can't do it. She's like, no, we can't. And she goes to the after party because her mom makes her. And Dolly Parton's like, how did the reshoot go? And she's like, oh, so bad. And Dolly says, don't you even worry. If you need anything, and I mean anything, you call me. And then she gave her her number. They all took a photo, and she says she used to hate that photo. That picture ran in a lot of places for a long time, and I hated it. I hated that girl trying to smile in the center of those incredibly talented people. But now I have learned to forgive myself. I see the bigger picture. I see four women and one fairy godmother supporting me solely because they knew I needed it. 
Tariba, Shania, Allison, Reese, and especially you, Dolly. Thank you. So at this point, Casey, her best friend slash at one point assistant, is also not speaking to her. She's gone back to work in A&R and she like hates this John Mayer situation. And I don't even know how I would deal with this as a friend. This is such a hard thing to even read about. But they get back together and she just becomes a girlfriend on a tour bus. She just starts following him around while he tours his new album. She would sit on the bus and take photos for the collection of what other girls were wearing. People would be like, are you ever going to sing again? And she'd be like, I don't know. He would take her out and spoil her buying her necklaces and diamonds and stuff. And she's like, I always knew when he was going to buy me a big gift that meant pretty soon I wouldn't live up to what he thought I was and he'd break up with me. It was just this like super toxic pattern. He also got her into Xanax as opposed to drinking to help take the edge off. He wants to sing with her and do a duet and she won't because that was her thing with Nick. And he like bullies her into it. He forces her into the studio one day to try and record a song with her. And she freaks out and can't do it. And she's like, what the fuck? This was so mean. But also she was like, I wish I had let him because I respected him as an artist and he would have given my song a new life. But she just couldn't do it. So he breaks up with her. But then, of course, she's at Cannes Film Festival looking beautiful and he gets back together. She finally decides she's going to do a new album. They're broken up for the time. She's like, I have to find myself. I got to get back to music. She calls Casey and says, please do the A&R for it. And she's like, if it doesn't go well, you're going to blame me. And she goes, well, I'm pretty sure it's not going to go well. Let's just do it. At least I'll have my best friend. And that also was another really kind of scary insight into her friendship with Casey. The fact that Casey's like, if this is a flop, you'll be mad at me. So she goes and she asks Dolly to help her for the country album. Dolly ends up sending her a song and then duets her with it, which is like huge for her. And she feels very welcomed by the country community. All the songwriters and the artists welcome her, but she's scared of what the public is going to think. Because I guess country fans can be kind of harsh on people just showing up and becoming country suddenly. But the album does well, and Rascal Flats even invites her to open for them on their huge sold-out tour. So at one point, she is, like, so anxious after one of these meetings with Dolly. Casey looks at her and says, you're just a beat-up little bird, aren't you? And it was such a cringe fucking thing to say. But she is such a beat-up little bird. People are so mean to her. It's so crazy how often the public just unites against Jessica Simpson as a common enemy. I do think Jessica Simpson was like put on this earth as so perfectly what everybody was told they want to be that like makes us hate her. Like the way as a 13 year old girl, so many adult men would come up to her in the church and be like, she's a disgusting whore. Like, why are you so mad at her? Because she accidentally became the thing you were told you want. You know what I mean? Yeah. The high school girls, the high school boys, the teenagers, when she went to open for 98 Degrees, like everyone is so mean to her and it's only just beginning. So she starts dating a nice, normal guy named Tony Romo. So nice, so normal, so chill. He's just a QB. Meanwhile, though, what happened to her ex, John Mayer? Well, he wiggled into her parents' life. He lives near them in like hidden valleys and is constantly going to their house. She goes to support her new boyfriend, Tony Romo, at a football game, and he plays really bad. And everyone, even his teammates, are like, yeah, Jessica Simpson is a jinx. And she's kind of like, I wish he would tell them to leave me alone, but he never sticks up for her. He could have just looked into the camera and told people that he was responsible for his performance and to leave his girlfriend alone. I waited. I will say, later she talks about the disillusion of this relationship, and I'm like, yeah, I think that the red flags were bright red from day one. She also says that she would spend more and more time at his house, 
which was hard because it was like a frat house where he just kept all of his friends filled with pizza. Everybody was crashing all the time. He had no curtains. He would use towels as curtains and he would use $350 checks as bookmarks next to the toilet, leaving them uncashed. Her friends would come to Dallas and be like, can I stay with you guys? And she'd be like, no, this house is disgusting. I'll get you a hotel. So it's January 2009. She's on tour with Rascal Flats. She's really fucking hitting her stride. She has a nice boyfriend. She's out of L.A. She's singing country music. She's doing what she loves, which is just performing to crowds at barbecues. And what should happen? Okay, so can I say, once again, this is like right after the entire country is mad at her for making Tony Romo be bad at football. And now she's back on tour. She's singing at a chili cook-off. And now the whole country is mad at her because she's fat. Do you guys remember Mom Jean Scandal 09? Barack Obama was asked about it. I'm sorry. If you were alive, you remember this. And if you weren't alive yet or you weren't conscious yet for like the 16 year olds who listen, Google it and look at how fucking crazy this was. My kids generation will read that once upon a time, Jessica Simpson wore a black sleeveless bodysuit, a high waisted blue jeans and a Fendi leopard print belt on stage at an outdoor afternoon concert in Pembroke Pines, Florida. And they will have no clue how that could have started a decade long international discussion about my body. Or why the media ran stills and slow-mos of me smiling on stage and twirling. Images examined like film footage of the Kennedy assassination. On TV and in magazines, pundits would be asked to guess my weight and size. Then the same exact segment or article talk about what a shame it is that I'm being bullied. Part of it is she's like, it was really sad because I was so happy at the time. I felt good about myself. And she's like, the other thing is, I was a size four. I was 5'3 and 120 pounds. And they were guessing 175 pounds. And she was like, I know if I went on the record and said, by the way, I have a normal fucking looking body. It actually would have hurt women more. Yeah. She's like, the way that they were tearing me apart, and I was just like a fit, attractive, thin woman. Like, I remember at the time being like, was it just a bad angle? And now I'm like, it wasn't even a bad angle. She looks good. But something that Linda Carter says to her when she played Daisy Duke is she goes, be careful. They're going to want you in these shorts for the rest of your life. And that's what it is. America has this idea that they are owed a woman's hotness, that it is a fucking betrayal. Who else had that? Somebody like cut off their hair. Maybe Brooke Shields. Oh, yeah. Everyone was like, how fucking dare you? not be the hottest version of yourself for us. Like, we're mad at you about it. I mean, we see it constantly on the internet. If you or I post a video without makeup on, people will, like, give me criticisms about my face. Like, I should fill in my eyebrows or whatever. And I'm like, I don't know, man. I'm in bed making a little pop culture commentary video. I am not coming to you as my hottest self. And it's women, too. Yes. Hey, girly. Hey, bestie. Just thought you should know you look like shit. Hey, bestie, please don't ever wear that color again. It looks like awful on you. And you're just like, oh, my God, I'm just trying to fucking live. I did not come on here and say this is me at my hottest. I just came on here and said, have you ever noticed that we were mean to Amber Heard? And you guys were like, I didn't listen to a word you said because I'm just so distracted by how ugly you are. Please, bestie, use double cleansing. They're not insulting you. You showing up not as your hottest self is insulting to them. Obviously, this is a real fucking setback. And she says she looks back and what she feels really bad about is one, she felt bad about herself, of course, but she felt bad for Tony, who now was stuck dating the fat girl. Oh, Jesus Christ. So the tour ends. She's back in Dallas, kind of shoved into this housewife position. She realizes with Tony, the problem is he wants both Jessica Simpson and the housewife. And she's like, I don't want to be in a relationship where I can't do my thing, too. Can you support me in what I do as much as I support everything you do? And they realize they probably can't make this work. Meanwhile, her own fucking parents have been hanging out with John Mayer. He goes over to their house all the time and begs them to talk to her for him. And they'll be like, Jessica, please hear him out. He's so sincere. He's such a good guy. He's really changed. He wants to marry you. And so he's also really close friends with Pete Wentz, who was married to Ashley at the time. 
She's talking to her mom about it, I think, at time of writing this book. I recently asked my mom why she spent all that time with him. What were you thinking? We were all in love with him, she said with a laugh. We'd bring him over here and we'd sit around the fire pit and he'd play his guitar. Do you think her mom finished this book and is still laughing about the way that she like re-injected this toxic fucker into her daughter's life? I can't believe the mom was like, oh my God, wasn't it so funny the way that you were asking for respect in your new relationship and we said no? Anyway, they ultimately break up her and Tony because they have a rule that she has to tell him anytime she comes into contact with John Mayer and she runs into him at her own birthday party that her parents invited him to. And even though nothing happened, he doesn't believe her and he breaks up with her. And then immediately after, he's like, can we get back together? And she's like, no. Yeah. You broke up with me. You did what I needed you to do. So thank you. Our breakup had been so ugly that it shocked me into realizing that it had been necessary. So then she goes back to John Mayer and is like, well, guess what? I'm single now, you fucking bitch. You can finally have me. And he's like, no, I don't really want you. (laughs) He had been making it seem to her parents that he wanted to marry her. And she goes back and is like, cool, well, let's be together then. And he goes, oh, you don't really get me. Yeah. He's also promoting his new album, Battle Studies. And he did an interview where he says that he would go back to the same girls time and time again. And she realizes that she was like part of a rotation. Who is the other girl? Is it Jennifer Aniston? Maybe. Some other girl. And she's like, you're dating both of us. He goes, well, I never said I was exclusive. And he goes, well, I never got any songs out of her. So that's why I need to go back to you. And she's like, oh, so those times that you were breaking up with me for fucking no reason and leaving me hysterical, they were just like, so you could feel something. So now they're broken up pretty good. She ends up doing this thing called The Price of Beauty, which is where she goes all over the world. And she's like, can you believe that beauty standards are like pretty arbitrary and different everywhere? So they get into like a huge fight. And then he starts doing these interviews to promote his new album. He did two interviews, one with Rolling Stone and one with Playboy, where he is so disrespectful towards her. One of them, he calls her sexual napalm. So as she is trying to promote this show about beauty standards and how we put too much pressure on women to like fit into these arbitrary boxes... All she's being asked about is how sexy she is. He did this to me just as I was about to do a press tour to promote The Price of Beauty, a passion project about female empowerment. I can't tell you how many of my girlfriends have warned me not to write about John. He'll come for you, one told me, genuinely concerned. But I am grateful he removed himself from my life so spectacularly. It cleared the way for Destiny to knock on my door. I just think it's really interesting when you read that now in light of the Taylor Swift thing. Yeah, because the general consensus is that would have could have should have is about him and also obviously dear John. And when Speak Now came out, she made this thing being like, leave him alone. It's not about who you think it is. And a lot of people are saying he made her do that because he's so litigious. He's famously litigious about his reputation. And it's so interesting that he'll like do a magazine interview and say the N word and then be like, don't say something mean about me. I guess you have to have a billion of dollars, a billion of dollars to go after John Mayer. And I hope that once the era's tour is over and Taylor Swift is a billionaire, yeah, she'll go after him next. So then she meets Eric, her Yale football playing boyfriend. She says their whole life felt like it was leading towards each other. And, you know, a flowery 10 pages about how they were meant to be. I always feel anxious when I read these because I'm like, bitch, your life is not over yet. I think that they're still happy together, but I never feel good about like everything in my life was a path to this moment. I think the thing that stresses me out is she talks about how Zen and centered and he's so into meditation and yoga and Tai Chi. And he has this guy named Master Wang who he's like followed to Asia to study Buddhism and stuff. And when they're in their trouble spot, she's like, we were both drinking a lot nonstop all the time. And I'm like, God, if that man had that many years of practicing self-control and self-centeredness and together you guys ended up being that self-destructive. Oof. 
So she goes through their whole story of how they meet through a mutual friend of a friend of a friend. He comes over. They talk all night. They have sex that night. He has to leave the next day for a Marianne Williamson thing. They just really get to know each other. And like within two weeks, they're inseparable. There was no need to dim my light around this man. As soon as it was over, I got out my laptop and led him down a YouTube rabbit hole. It also stresses me out when someone is like, I could be myself around them. We'd known each other for three days and I'd never felt more connected. I'm like, okay, rewrite that sentence in 10 years. And then I made him watch every episode of The Price of Beauty, which I was so proud of. That is crazy. Imagine if I met a guy and I was like, okay. Watch Bitchnesses. (laughs) Listen to 17 hours of CNBC. She has a big birthday party and it was supposed to just be a girl's trip, but she like loved Eric so much that she invited him. And I'm like, if I was one of the girls, I would be so fucking pissed if all of a sudden the girl's trip is a girl's plus one boyfriend trip. I wouldn't. She was like flying them out private to the island of Capri where they were just like on a yacht all day. I think I could ignore one man on a yacht. I am one of those people who has a lot of best friends and I love them all differently. But for some reason, a lot of those people just consider me their one best friend. That's my least favorite line in this whole book. That's so funny. It's because that's the money thing of if somebody throws you the biggest birthday party of your life and then also sends you flowers on everything, it's a resource thing. Yeah. Because nobody else has a staff of people who they can employ at a moment's notice to make you feel special. That's so funny. That's like a therapist being like, I don't know, all these people think I'm their top confidant. (laughs) But I would never confide in any of these people. (laughs) The big problem in their relationship is Eric is supposed to go to Wharton in the fall. He got into grad school. You know, he's really stressed because he's like, I don't know. I've fallen in love this summer, but I do have to do this for me and my business. And she's like, I have a business and I didn't even graduate high school. And he's like, oh, my God, you're so right. I could work for your business. (laughs) So he realizes he's like, I wanted to go to business school to like develop roots for myself, but you could be my roots. So then one day in November, I guess, when did they meet? Like, they don't live together for a few months at this point. I think they met in, like, May. It had been six months. Yeah. So he had proposed so that they could get married next year on November 11th, 2011. 11, 11, 11, 11. They got engaged on 11, 11. They're supposed to get married on 11, 11, 11. But then on their summer trip in Italy, she's like, I want to have a baby girl. And he's like, that doesn't scare me off. I think that's sexy. And then they don't get married on 11, 11, 11 because she is, in fact, pregnant with a baby girl. So from that time she had that cyst, they removed one of her fallopian tubes. And so they're like, it'll affect your fertility and that you'll only have one egg drop every other month because only one of your tubes works. She has this miracle where she gets pregnant the month that an egg hops to the wrong tube. Yeah, like her right egg month time. They said that they had never seen it in their lives. Only one other time that an egg traveled from one ovary to the other ovary to come down the tube. So she was like a miracle baby. And they were like, oh, my God, it's a fucking miracle, baby. And she loves that baby so much. And she is just so excited. And right before she gives birth, when she's in the hospital, because with all of these babies, she gains like an insane amount of weight and has the biggest babies known to man and gets like diabetes with all of them. Wait, can I actually read you my second least favorite sentence in that book? So when she finds out she's pregnant. I ran upstairs screaming. I was crying. I couldn't talk. I just handed him the pregnancy test. What I'd known for that minute, he now knew. And I watched the excitement and relief wash over him. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, so they're in the hospital. She's having the baby. It has to get sliced out. And what does her dad take this opportunity to say? I'm leaving your mother. And it's all you. You told me that I could. (laughs) You gave me the permission to be brave. And she was just like, don't say that to me. So now they have this baby. They're going to get married. She's ignoring her dad and she's on this Weight Watchers diet. She's like, I wasn't worried at all about getting weight during my pregnancy because I knew that I already had a deal with Weight Watchers lined up and they were going to give me a program and I can follow directions really well. This is America's fault. She's like, I made it. 
a really fun thing with all of my friends. We all did it together and we all had a weekly weigh in. It was joyful. And I was losing three and a half pounds a week. And when out of nowhere, four months into postpartum, I'm pregnant again. And she's like, and again, it was the wrong month. It was my right ovary month. And I was like, maybe it wasn't. Yeah. Maybe you lost count one time. I will say Eric does stand up for her big time to her dad, which I really appreciated. He is like obsessed with trying to come over and talk to Jessica and like honestly get her to join his side. And Eric says, each time you deny your own truth, something intense happens. You have to listen to the science and take care of yourself. Jess has no extra energy to give to you right now. And I also wonder if he was being like, listen, we're really fucking mad at you. But if you want to be gay, we give you permission. My parents filed for divorce that August. Dad moved on quickly and maybe he'd planned it so long that he had a running start ahead of my mother. He tends to have conversations with himself for so long that he suddenly talks about something as if we're all supposed to be up to speed. He starts in the middle and it can make people, well, my mom, feel lost. So basically they break up and she never outright says it in this book, but he starts dating men. He comes out as gay and then the mother gets really pissed and makes him choose sides and Ashley won't. And I think it puts a huge strain between Ashley and her mother. But Jessica's like, you're right. I'm on your side. And she stops speaking to her dad for a while. So she fires her dad at this time and he doesn't believe it. But she's like, it's not even about the divorce thing. It's about the fact that he was making so many bad deals. She also says that during this time, her and her mom went through a really rough patch, which is crazy because she had picked her mom over her dad. But she was like, I now realize that when people are hurt, they need to hurt other people. And she was being so mean to me. It's weird because she'll say that her mom was really hard on her, but you don't see it the way you see the bad relationship with her dad. But you're like, I guess that was like a huge part of you, too. Yeah. That your mom also pushed you really hard and was really critical. And I guess the dad gets the brunt of it because he's the manager and he's so obviously pushing. But it also seems like her mom was like more than happy to starve her and more than happy to side with her ex-husband and more than happy to keep her in a bad relationship so that America would like her. And more than happy to let John back into their house. I mean, there's a lot of offenses coming from the mom's side, too. But I like that we're mad at the dad. This is a real breath of fresh air. So she gets married to Eric finally. He splits his pants in the middle of the ceremony. They have this, like, over-the-top wedding, which sounds really fun. They, like, rented the whole resort, 18-piece band, Carolina Herrera dress. Her dad, she asks for one thing. She asks him to bring the Bible that he used to preach with, and he forgets it. Because he's the efficient. And he doesn't just forget that Bible. He forgets any Bible. And she's like, Dad, the one thing you need is to read hymns from the Bible so we can, like, get married on the Bible. And he forgets it. And he goes, but don't worry, I brought my iPad. And the iPad dies. He goes, that's fine. I'll wing it. And I'm like, this is fucked up. He also, like, three days before the wedding is like, can I bring my boyfriend? Well, he doesn't say boyfriend. He says my friend who's a model. Well, she doesn't say boyfriend. She says his friend Jonathan, who was a model. Yeah, but, like, later when she's, like, giving birth, Jonathan's there, too. Four years and two babies in, we were husband and wife. I had a running joke. I wanted to get married, but I kept getting pregnant. But the truth is that it made perfect sense that we were all together to share our wedding day. I wouldn't have had it any other way. There's a before and an after, but I have a hard time pinpointing exactly when things changed. As I write this book, I've been having heart-to-hearts with my friends, and each has a different moment in which they began to worry about me. And she talks about when she started to worry about herself. So she'd been drinking a lot, taking stimulants during the day, and then taking Ambien to go to sleep at night. And she's going to have a partial tummy tuck and they're running some tests before her procedure and they call her when she's on vacation and they're like, dude, you're going to die. And she's like, oh, I'll stop drinking after this trip. But after the trip is like one day till her tummy tuck and her mom is like, please don't do it. Mom, I said, taking off my dress in front of her, I stood there naked before the woman who birthed me. Let's go, she said. The surgery went fine. I can't believe her mom was like, I'm so worried for your health. And she's like, but look at what my stomach looks like. And her mom was like, oof, yeah. Yeah, get rid of that stomach or die trying, bitch. Jesus Christ. She was still unhappy, though, so she gets another tummy tuck. And she's like, I just hated my body so much. 
I was so scared that if I lifted my arms and somebody saw the skin over my jeans, everybody would bully me. And I was like, valid. And we did that to her. And we as America need to say, sorry, Jessica Simpson, that we bullied you into thinking that it was worth risking your life to get a tummy tuck because you were so scared of how mean we'd be to you because we would have been that. I mean, it's literally like CNN's fault. And she realizes that she's still really heartbroken over her parents' breakup. She talks about just being drunk to numb a lot of her feelings. She got drunk and went on the Ellen show. And then she blames herself for a bad interview. But I blame Ellen because Ellen's inability to keep pace with guests is so fucking embarrassing. I'm sorry, you hosted a talk show for how many fucking years and you can't even keep up with one drunk guest? Get a goddamn grip, Ellen. There's a tiny light in me still, though a little flame for me to make my birthday wish on. I whispered my request, asking God for help and mercy I wouldn't give myself. It would take three and a half months, but God would save me so I could come home to myself. So now she's in therapy twice a week and she's like, you know, I told so many people these stories before that it took a while. First I told the stories and then I could feel the stories and then I was able to step into the little girl who was experiencing the stories and work through the emotions. She stopped drinking and she's like, I think it was a situational depression. It was just a long situation. She talks about going to dinner with all her girlfriends the first time that she's sober and they all ordered a water and she cried happy tears. Her husband stops drinking with her and she talks about how they had started drinking so much together. I do think he just like got caught up in this lifestyle of every day is a party and there's so much money. I mean, it's, I don't know if she is a billionaire, but her lifestyle is insane. Yeah. And I think it's easy to get caught up in the whirlwind. She goes back to writing and she decides to write all her own music now. Again, this is the album that she plays for her dad that's to this day we've never heard. Maybe it's just not on Spotify. Maybe it's like an Apple Music exclusive. Maybe it's like just a physical copy. And then she finds out she's pregnant. She has her baby. It's like 100 pounds. <laughs> 10 pounds, 13 ounces. They're so happy. They're a big, happy family. She's trying to forgive her dad. They're working through it. It's not easy, but you are worth the work. And if you do not have a stable presence in your life, take the time you need to become the stable presence for yourself to find that stillness within you, no matter what storm you're in. Leaving you now, I feel the way I do seeing my children off to school. I start to sputter all these things at them. Do you have your water bottle? Here, let me straighten your collar. Remember to be kind. Listen to your teachers. Sit with someone lonely. Make good choices. And most important, I love you. Ash. Yeah. Final thoughts. I mean, I really like Jessica Simpson's book. I Okay. <laughs> no, I like Jessica Simpson a lot as someone I'm like rooting for. Yes. I think she has been wronged. All she wanted to do was become a billionaire so her family wouldn't fight anymore. And it turns out she became so rich her dad turned gay, <laughs> which sucks. It feels like a fucking loophole. <laughs> I do think all she wants is like peace in everyone's heart and Jesus. And who can fault that? I don't think that she is always doing the right thing, but I think she's always doing what she thinks is the right thing. I think she has hope and joy in her heart. And like all she wants is for other people to be happy. Yeah, I think she's trying. Yeah. Okay. How fertile would you consider this soil? 4.5 out of 5. Me too. But how many warm teenies would you want with Jessica? None. Stay sober. I wouldn't even want to go get a coffee with her. I would hope to meet her in the club, in the bathroom. I would love to meet her in the bathroom of the club and then come back and told you who I just met in the club. I would love to never meet her, but to be invited to one of her big fancy parties. And have it be one of the ones that she was like too sick to go to, but the party went on. I mean, like, I don't think we'd have to talk. I think there's so many people at those parties that you could kind of get in the front door, like do a lap, get some appetizers and make your way out. I feel like you would go to her party and she'd be like, oh my God, darling, are you having fun, baby? Thank you for coming. Can I get you anything? You'd be like, it's okay, Jessica Simpson. There's literally waiters with trade <laughs> cocktails. And she'd be like, come to the fridge. Let me show you what we have for leftovers. And you'd be like, Jessica, this is a fully catered event. 
She would like give you a Ziploc baggie of sashimi to take home. <laughs> anyway, you guys, I love you so much. I hope you didn't care about our weeks and I hope I see you on tour. I guess we're recording this from pre-wedding. I hope I got married. Oh my God, me too. Good luck to me out there, huh? Claire of the future. I hope it went well. And do you know who else I hope it goes well for? Our five-star reviewing wormies. Thank you so much to our five-star reviewers. I love you every second of every day. Thank you, Sarah, Alisa, Alisa in here. I appreciate you so friggin' much. Glitz Valium. I love you so much that it chills me out every second of every day like a pill. Thank you, PT Shao. I can be Shao of one thing, and that is that I love you. Thank you, SJC7387. I adore you. 73 hours a day, 87 days a week. Thank you, Agent Sparkles14. Your secret is safe with me. Whatever kinds of secret agent shit you're planning to do, I love you so much. Thank you, Skills McToots. Oh my God, that is what I call bugs sometimes. And that is how I know that I friggin' love you. Alexandria V, I am the appreciative of your review. TBS1989. One thing that I will not be shaking off, it's how happy I am to get this review. Wacky mime routine. There is one kind of mime that I love, and that is a wacky mime. Gatsby's mom, thank you so much for raising the great Gatsby and for leaving this beautiful review. Lid2856. One thing that I will not put a lid on is how much I appreciate you. That is all for this week. I love you guys so, so, so much. And I cannot wait to be back next week. If you want to hear all about Claire's wedding, sign up for our Patreon. We recorded the most hungover recap you've ever heard in your entire friggin' life. But, you know, we'll be back to our regular selves next week. Thank you.